I remember my mom crying because we had spent three days without food because the elephants came and ate everything in the farm. And, and it hurt me so much to realize the pain that we were going through, you know, you know simply because of the elephants. And you, you could not come and tell my community that elephants are beautiful yeah. animals. Honestly, yeah. it wouldn't make sense at <clears throat> all. And yeah. I think at that age, at, at the age of six, I, I started feeling deep within me that elephants weren't aware of what they were doing. They were just animals. But then my community was suffering. So I started thinking that maybe someone needs to do something, maybe understand the elephants and come and sort of be like a buffer, be in between the community and the elephants. And that's, that's when my desire to, to be in conservation started. Welcome to The Conservation Couch, a weekly podcast where four buddies from four corners of the earth come together and chat all things conservation. Our mission is to create a global conservation conversation and make it accessible for all. Featuring on the couch, we have myself, Dr. Mahesh Pat, James Jemu Mwenda, Jamil Dowling, and last but not least, Blaine Earth Offline Edwards. So if you want to join the conversation, make sure you subscribe right now. I hope you enjoy today's episode. So as all, all you guys know, my name's Jamil. Um, I'm a vet student. Welcome, Jamil. Same as Mahesh. Oh, Welcome. Cheers, mate. Cheers, man. Cheers. Um, and today I'm just going to talk a bit about how I kind of got into conservation and what kind of led me to being where I am now. So my background's a bit weird. I kind of grew up all over the world. Um, to kind of make the story shorter, because it's quite long, uh, my dad was part of a militant group in Kashmir when they were fighting for independence and my mum was out there doing a bit of, I think she's doing journalism and stuff. That's what she said, but it's hard to get Is your mum so, from the UK? Yeah, so mum's from Brighton. Oh, okay. um, and yeah, so she went out there for five years, met my dad and, you know, fell in love and stuff and then... She got pregnant with me, and around that time, she had a grenade thrown at her, and both oh, wow. dogs were poisoned. So they decided oh. it was best to leave Kashmir. Fair enough. Uh, hmm. Came back to the UK, had a bit of a messy divorce. She took me away um, to Venezuela and Colombia uh, to protect protect me from my dad, because from what she said, he had quite a few bad contacts. Um, being in the circles he was and that's how pretty much where my journey in conservation started because I grew up in the jungle in, in the Amazons uh, in Canaima National Park and a lot all over Venezuela and Colombia really uh, we used to live along the Orinoco with different tribes and yeah that was my childhood to an extent but the one like memory I have quite vividly is when we confiscated some ocelot skins from some poachers, not me as a five-year-old, but um, Tony, who was the... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was a nice... Tony, he was the kind of main guide, and I think my mum was seeing him at the time. I only found that out recently. 
it's quite oh. a lot of things go unnoticed as a five-year-old plot <laughs> um, <Hot> thickens <laughs> yeah so he, he confiscated it and cut it up so they couldn't really sell it or do anything with it because it was just the pelts and I, I till this day I still have a small piece with the bullet hole in it and uh, that was quite a not a tra- not a traumatic experience but quite a eye-opening experience the fact that do you, people were, do you remember that like quite vividly yeah quite well yeah so five years old you're five years old when that happened five four hmm. four four five i'm not i'm not too sure i, I know i was out yeah. there till i was six um so i don't really remember too many yeah i was gonna say you've got good memory four or five year old i guess that that's one that would stick out for sure yeah, well no, I didn't. that that's the thing no. is like i didn't stop um, yeah. I also remember like playing with a baby honey bear at one point. So it's you know I don't have the full spectrum of memories, but there are like some yeah, well, there's a decent key, key, key memories. Um, mm. It'd be pretty sad if there weren't because there were some amazing experiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Long... Mum's got an archive of pictures from those days. Um, so yeah, after that I came. We kind of bounced around all over the world. Uh, England, France, and we finally settled in Spain. And in Spain, mum got a house in the middle of a natural park in Sierra de la Cena y Pico de Rocha, um, so South Spain. And we lived in a tent for a year, I think, or, or a year and a half. How, was, how old were you at this point? I think I was seven or six. six probably six, because I had to start school or something like that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And yeah, we were living in a tent and mum was building the house by hand. So there was an old ruin and she was just, you know, doing all the stonework and learning all of that. So pretty uh, strong, determined woman. And again, yeah. I was exposed to like a huge amount of nature there because it was in a natural park. So we had like wild boar coming down to the river every night and deer off in the land. There's endangered species of frogs that kind of look like tree frogs, which was really weird for Spain because... It's the Mediterranean, and they're only kind of lying our garden. So there's this one big leafy plant that kind of looked like, you know, not as dry as everything else, I guess. It's a bit more humid. And, yeah, so in Spain, I did the whole schooling system, didn't really get on well with it, got kicked out pretty much every year, over what? 20 times as an average, just for arguing with uh, teachers <laughs> or... Well, I'm over classic what? One. Just you know, classic stuff. I've always been passionate about like biology, conservation, especially the sciences. They've always been interesting, so I do a lot of reading on my own, just out of curiosity. And then I'd ask these really, I in retrospect, pesky questions that I don't think many people would have the answers to. Ah, oh, you pesky bugger! <laughs> and as a consequence, they wouldn't have the answer. And then I'd be like, oh, well, you don't have the answer. Why should you be teaching me? Like, um, you know, it's a really, really stupid childish attitude about it. And Do you remember yeah. any question? Any of those pesky questions? Off the top of my head. Yeah. No. Uh, it's so, more uh, like what was... Sorry. Oh, go there ahead. we go. We got an outro. Jamil's pesky questions. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I remember one question. I, I can't remember how old I was, but... Uh, I remember asking my science teacher, I was like, okay, I was asking her, okay, so there's, there's no, like fire needs oxygen to exist and the sun has fire on it. 
so how and there's no there's no oxygen in space so i asked my science teacher i was like why if there's no oxygen in space how is there fire in the sun and she didn't actually know how to answer that question and i just that's one thing that i remember like one question i was like oh yes i'm so proud of that question i just wondered if you if you had any any particular pesky question that you're like yes that you're so proud of that you can't remember i mean uh... I know I'd go off on tandems and I kind of still do at university. And it's like, if we were talking about <laughs> genetics or something like that, it wouldn't just be, okay, yeah, that makes sense. It'd be like, oh, right. Um, so is there any chance we can kind of take the genes from this thing and insert them in this thing? Obviously yeah, yeah, now yeah. with CRISPR, we can. Back then it wasn't so straightforward, but I wouldn't kind of just take a, I don't know, answer or the other yeah, answer yeah. was it's not in the syllabus. And that's one that really fucked me off. Um, oh, just because definitely. it's like, what do you mean it's not in the syllabus? <laughs> well, screw you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so school yeah. wasn't very productive. So I got emancipated because uh, my dad got contact out of me out of the blue. So over Facebook. Oh, but um, this, was, um, this was when you were in Spain. Yeah, so I'm fast forward. So you, in a you're few in years. Spain. You're in Spain from like seven till sixteen. Pretty much, although Mum took okay. me out of school when I was ten or eleven or ten because I had my birthday in India. So basically, my grades were really good, even though I was having problems at school. She went to the, see the school, and she was like, "Okay, can I take my son out traveling for six months to <laughs> India in the fall?" Oh. Um, so you took you you took a gap year at like ten. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so oh, yeah, my eleven, my my eleven year old's <laughs> birthday present was a kakuri, which is fucking cool. You know, eleven year old with a big kakuri is a dangerous thing. It was yeah. that a kakuri? Like those big knives from the Gurkhas <laughs> in the pool. Okay, you mom gave me one of them. Nice. Is... <laughs> I, I was asking for it. It had been a long time coming. Oh man, and and and, 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 and uh... there you go. <laughs> How was your social life like as a, as, as a young kid? I mean, playing with other schoolmates and young folks is an integral part for your growth. And yeah, maybe that that's why I'm socially inept now. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers to that. Cheers to that. <laughs> um, no, well, most of my friends as a kid were animals. So in South America, it was a little mon monkey called Pepe. He was a capuchin monkey. His mum had been um, killed. Uh, cl classic, you know, kill the mum and then the monkey will, you know, the baby will attach to its new owner. Um, but he was a cheeky little shit. He used to run across the camp down the top of the roofs and straight for the sugar pot um, at breakfast time. Uh, yeah, so th there were a few kids mixed in here and there when I grew up, but I, I mainly hung out around with adults, a lot of scientists, weirdly. Um, but it, it was really good. Um, mm -hmm. I, I enjoyed growing up that way because you kind of learned to deal with all types of people from a very mm -hmm. early on age. You weren't just dealing with kids, you were dealing with adults. And yeah. one of the rules my mum stuck to is like, if you get yourself into trouble, you know, you're going to have to solve it yourself. So, you know, there are a few incidences here and there where like just what? wouldn't intervene. Um, I don't know. I really pissed off these two guys. I can't remember what they're called. Um, just being, you know, prodding away at people and, you know, asking me them any questions and not leaving them alone. And they just like both grabbed me like, we're going to fucking fling me into the sea. 
anyway, six year old well, is not hard to pick up. Six. <laughs> um uh, yeah i was like mom, mom. and she was like no obviously i wasn't gonna die <laughs> but <laughs> she'd definitely not intervene um but then so talking about other kids in spain uh, i don't know how old i was but one of the things that probably made me not get on with everyone as much as everyone else was uh, if i saw a praying mantis i would you know be super interested want to kind of how to look at it see how it works maybe even like pick it up on your hand and stuff at one point i used to bring them into the house on different plants and used to feed them the flies in the house and i had like a whole operation going but uh the kids in spain would try and throw stones at it and I'd, I'd be the one who'd be like stop doing that you fucking idiots why are you doing that um did you have your um your kukuri at that point no but when they brought a dog down to try and get him to fight with our dog i got a bow and arrow out and i had the <laughs> as well they never came back um <laughs> when did you get the bow and arrow when did you get the bow and arrow uh well so when i was young i had a long bow uh, a compound bow and then i had a few homemade ones and i'd made them particularly lethal by taking these really sturdy big long nails and tying them onto the end of the tips of the arrow so it wasn't just the tip now they had a massive tip that wouldn't bend um it actually went through my mum's car's bonnet at one point <laughs> just completely free because i've seen how high they could go and then i was like oh fuck it's gonna fall on me so i started running and it just fell straight into the car um oh, i'm not happy cool. about that <laughs> so yeah when i was a 10 11 i went out to india nepal and that's where i kind of got some more experience with elephants rhinos um tracking tigers you know, you name it, anything. Because mum had been at that park in Chitwan when she was 25, I think, and she was directing things over there. And yes, yeah, so you had loads of contacts. You know, the guy who used to peel potatoes, um, I, I think it was him, Sukram, was now a, like a proper guide and he would take me off and, you know, teach me how to walk through the jungle to make less noise and all, all the small little things. And, you know, that... I, oh, no, sorry, I forgot. We also got chased by a rhino that time round because one of the oh. stupider oh. guys threw a stick into the bush and then a rhino just fucking came busting out of it. Um, that was a fun experience. Funny enough, I, I like ran and then took a tight corner and hid behind a bush, which is what you're supposed to do. And my mum bloody picked me up. I was like, no, fuck it. We need to go uh, to get back up onto the, you know, um, can't remember what they're called. Those houses that are raised off the ground in the jungle, like viewpoints. Um, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Probably makes more like, sense because the rhino can't go upstairs. But yeah, <laughs> can't go upstairs. <laughs> we have them. I think we call them watching towers. Like where you? Yeah, can, that's you the can, one. Watch tower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So, what were some of like the? Uh, you said you got taught kind of how to, you know, how to be in the jungle. Essentially, what what were some of the cool things you got taught that you remember now? How you tread with your foot was a key one, uh, just so it makes less noise. Um, I think so if I remember yeah. rightly, if you tread on the lateral side of your foot and then place it down, it makes a lot less noise. Hmm. Um, I don't know how much science that's backed up by. That's what I was told. And maybe it was because I was walking more thoughtfully after I was told that and I made less noise. I don't mm -hmm. know. But I guess it's because you're not heel striking, so you're not getting that FUD. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, you don't get that clap as well. You don't get that clap. Yeah, the plop, 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 plop. Yeah. 
Yes. Um, so yeah, that, that was what that was like really cool. And then another one was to kind of always be aware of the things around you and stuff, and keep an eye open. Um, you know, a few years later, it came came in handy that to know how to react to like the moon bears if you came quite close to them is like just try and shout and open your arms much as possible and take advantage of that s- small moment to get them to run away you know because mm. if they get curious and playful well mm, yeah not looking too how good big are they <laughs> um uh, the, the males were pretty big the, Ooh, there was one male in, in Kashmir in Dachigam National Park called Sahil and apparently he had killed three other males in captivity holy um, I, d- I think it was 300 pounds. I think. Um, I'd have pretty, to check it. Yeah, they do get pretty big, to be fair. Um, but, um, I, I do like that part when you're talking about protecting the insects. Yeah. Like, I love that particular part because my favorite quote, or one of my favorite quotes, is um, teaching a child not to step on a caterpillar is as <laughs> valuable to the caterpillar as it is to the child. And I think oh, that's, that's so tough. true. And that's. You're one of those people. Yeah, well, it's my Don't kill that, that worm. Way. How dare you? Arrow. <laughs> well, <laughs> one of the things that really, like, from seven years into bed, I don't know if any of you have seen it, was when all the monks were digging up the worms to place that electric cable in for the cinema. And they were digging up all the soil, removing the worms one by one and relocating them. Oh, cool. No, oh, they were Buddhist so and they, cool. they don't want to kill any of the worms. And I was like, wow. why, why is the world not like seven years into that? Seven years. That is so cool. I was just like, that why is cool. everyone not like this? Because if you look at the Western mm-hmm. world, they'll just get a tractor and kill whatever I'm yeah, so you know, like, yeah, yeah, No one cares. <laughs> the world would be a much better place if everyone removed the earthworms or had that man- mentality. Uh, yeah. yeah. Remove the worms. Yeah. Remove so, the worms. Remove yeah. the worms and save the world. Yeah. One worm at a time. One worm yeah. at a time. <laughs> so um, so you, you, you said you're out with your dad at this point, is it? So, yeah. When I was 16, he'd kind of... Oh, no. This is when you went back to school, right? Um, well, see, yeah. So that was the transition phase. I had a chat with my mum about him getting in contact and she was like well, you're getting kicked out of school a lot and you're also, we're also arguing at the house a lot because you don't want to do the washing up, you know, don't want to wash the plates and things, you know, <laughs> typical mum-son arguments, but yeah, to the yeah. nth level. And because we lived on, like, in a natural park, um, if I ever had a big argument or whatever, I'd just kind of take off for a couple of days and sleep in the forest um just to avoid mum and like because i know i it, it was really petty but i knew she'd get concerned and it would kind of level down the conversation um but obviously you get hungry sometimes and figs only get you so far so i'd have to do these like nighttime or early morning raids of the kitchen where i'd go for the cereal box and get out before mum had seen me uh were you um were you were you, were you veggie at this point uh, uh so you, I was veggie up until i was six completely i'm just wondering if you were like hunting and stuff like that no 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 so i I was eating just figs strawberries yeah like a really manky diet but i (laughs) ate some questionable things i ate a worm once just to see what Uh, it was like oh you were to save the worms no i know it's controversial i don't know what i do man i don't have any power to i think we've been cancelled already 
um but yeah so <laughs> yeah okay right getting back to the main timeline oh <laughs> um, uh, yeah yeah, yeah sorry. when i was 16 yeah. you know i had that chat with my mum and stuff and she said it's fine got emancipated um got an affidavit from my dad saying he could take care of me and stuff so yeah then i was on a flight out to india uh, arrived at mumbai i was gonna go to a school there what is i to get my a levels and stuff um at that time, I don't think it was quite apparent that I was going towards veterinary, or although I'd always known that had been then goal, I hadn't really sorted the path out just because I'd wasted a lot of time fighting with the system. Um, so it kind of sidetracked from all of that. And because it, it, I knew you could do exams as private candidate, I always knew I could just kind of rock up to them, get you know free A's or whatever the entry requirement was, and then just get into vet school. So Mm -hmm. that kind of made me not really care about school too much. Um, So yeah, I went out to India, met my dad. They were like crying a lot. Um, Wasn't as emotional for me because I'd never seen them. And when someone's not in your life for that long, I just think it's a bit, yeah. And they're also quite desensitizing. But yeah, I met everyone out there and it was really interesting. I was living on the houseboats in Srinagar on the lake on Palgam. I went up to Palgam, sorry. Um, but the best thing I found up in Kashmir was that there was a 20-minute motorbike drive from where I was living to Dashagam National Park. And they had a bear and leopard rehabilitation center there. So, you know, standard uh, <clears throat> approach to kind of get allowed to see more things in there is just hang around much as possible, hang around the rangers, just ask them questions, just yeah. sit there. Um, and yeah that just led me to getting on with them really well and they started letting me go in the enclosures with the bears um i was playing with baby cubs you know on a daily was this, basis was this moon bears sorry moon was bears moon yeah bears? yeah they they, were, where 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 had they been um why were they in the sanctuary i was i so my cashmere wasn't great and their english wasn't great as yeah. far as I could tell, the baby was there because his mum had been killed by poachers. Um, that's what I understood. Okay, yeah, really yeah, on it. Um, <clears throat> the two females, I'm not sure. And I think Sahil had an injury. The big male had an injury at some point. Uh, the two leopards, I never really found out why they're in captivity, but I'm pretty sure they were never going to be released. Okay. Just because once you put a big cat in, it's quite hard to yeah. rehabilitate, especially with the budget they were on. Um, so yeah, I learned a lot over there. Went back to Nepal at some point, uh, lived with the mahouts again, and you know, making those balls for the elephants. We filled them with the grains and pulled the rice over. <laughs> oh, what this was at a what? What was this elephant? Uh, Chitwan National Park. But so what, the elephants there for like uh, riding safaris or yeah yeah unfortunately yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what it was yeah. It, yeah. but you got to but, spend time with them yeah but the mahouts were actually really they really really cared about the elephants uh, I don't yeah. know if I was lucky with the ones I've landed with one of the elephants was called Chanchakali uh, or I probably m- murdered the pronunciation of that so Chanchakali <laughs> um, but his his uh, mahout was called Govinda and he really, really cared about her. He refused to use the, you know, the metal spike. I don't uh, know what it's called. Uh, he, he'd only use a little bamboo stick and tap her. 
and you could really tell they like loved each other. Yeah. Uh, sadly, when I went back at some point, he actually lost her because the way it works over there is the elephants are owned by some rich dude. Yeah, they are they they rented. Yeah, the they like you know you can be the mahout, but it's oh. like football. You can trade the players around. Yeah. So he lost her, and he had been with yeah. her since she was like a tiny baby so i think that hit him quite hard yeah and how, yeah. how old was the elephant at that point i say she was around eight to ten okay uh, still really young yeah yeah still i want to young. say that um mm. i can double check and get back to everyone on that one i'll post it in the description <laughs> <laughs> Down so, the road. Yeah. <laughs> um, check it out here. Link. Um, Subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe, please, to so, our podcast. Um, only, please. So, in India, it all took quite a rapid bad turn, and this is kind of leading up towards where I am now. And yeah, my dad stopped paying the fees for the school. The school threatened with handing me over to the police. This is very summarizing everything, because otherwise, I could spend too long going through the details. Was this a school in um, in Nepal? Uh, you, no, no, you're in Mumbai. Oh, you're in Mumbai. Okay. Yeah, mate, I'll do that. <laughs> Try and keep track of me. You're being bloody everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, uh, Jamil, I'm, I'm just so curious, just like um, with all the different places you've lived and um, all the places you've, I mean, you're growing up, how it's, you know, complicated here and there do, do you think it's it's shipped you to to be where you are i mean do you feel like um you're living yeah, to yeah. be yeah yeah 100 percent um yeah i if i'd stayed in spain i don't see how that would have worked out um and yeah no 100 percent but i think it's as with everyone you know you are the sum total of your experiences yeah so no matter yeah. how you've grown up it will inevitably mm-hmm. result in who you are. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have, where's your home? Like where would you say? Yeah, what do you consider home? Caravan 2021. Um, the conservation mobile. <laughs> um, no, so I, as of now, I'd say it's Spain, but I've never really had that kind of fixed concept of where home is because we've always bounced Ooh. about so much. Interesting. But I, I guess home for me is wherever I, I feel the most comfortable and surrounded by the most people I know. Um, mm. You know, mum's always bouncing about as well. Like it's only recently she's back in Spain. Before that, she was off with the Tamang tribe in Nepal for a year and a half or two in Thailand, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia. So I don't, I don't even know how the, what the full list is. But she's enjoying life, you know. Having her son leave at 16 was good. Got to start living <laughs> those early years on. <laughs> um, so yeah. So wait, um, so, so you're wait. Back to the story. We're we're in Mumbai now, where you're getting threatened to get kicked out. Threatened to hand over the handed over to the police. Well, why are they handing you over to the police? Because my dad didn't pay the school fees. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it gets that's... worse. Uh, and I'd also had a lot of of that school um i actually did a hunger strike that ended me up in the hospital uh, and i ended up in the hospital and it was, it was the most stupid thing ever it was because i wanted um a certain type of pasta and they kept cooking it wrong <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> i, I hate to admit Wait, that let me. Was... 
<laughs> you went on a hunger strike because they didn't give you the right pasta. Like they didn't cook it with the right cheese. It was this like it wasn't paneer. It was this horrible cheese. So it just didn't taste oh, man. like proper pasta. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I kind of knew the weight that of an international student, you know, being fucked up at the school. I know I knew what that would do to their reputation, I guess, and kind of but I got my pasta and I got way much more after the hospital. Um so it worked out. I was a conniving little shit as a kid. I'm a long way. <laughs> oh man. So um okay. But yeah. Um so <laughs> that is so funny. So the school was threatening her kicking me out and handing me over to the police and then my mum intervened, she called the embassy up. The embassy were like, oh, we're not gonna help him, he's over sixteen. I thought I was still a minor, but I don't know how that all works. Um I guess she did what she does and probably also threw around some big words and stuff and they drove to school, picked me up. At the time, weirdly enough, I had this like infection a really pussy infection here so my whole face had swollen i could barely see so i was like fucking tripping out on this massive swelling all it and my eyes were puffing and whilst being semi-deported slash repatriated um so yeah they picked me up put me on a flight and next thing you well they said to me you can either go to spain back to your mum or you can go to england as a british citizen if I went back to Spain, I knew that would probably be the end of my career and education because the system over there is pretty bad. And I'd clearly not succeeded in it for the last 10 years. So yeah. I don't see why anything is going to change. And you could get the British citizenship because of your mom. I always had a British passport. Uh, we always kept that. So, but, but then coming back to England, it was a bit of a... All right, we'll take you back to England, see what happens. Um, the embassy was supposed to have sent someone to the airport in Heathrow to pick me up, but no one was there. So I got took in by the asylum seekers team <laughs> um, of social services. Uh, I got oh, put into an asylum seeker's house and I was actually classed as an asylum seeker with a British passport. Um, I don't know how that happens, but apparently, apparently I was like that for four or five months. I was an asylum seeker. Um, sixteen. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I was living. So what, in what was that? Really... What was that period like? It was stressful, man. Because uh, I had to do all my GCSEs, all my A levels, all my AS. So AS and A two. So about six years of education in one year, in one exam period. Um, Seriously. Yeah. So fifty-four exams, I think it came to over a month and a bit. So you know the exam period, some exam what? period. <laughs> And they were at different they, levels. They let you was, take your A-levels at 16. So when I came back from India, I was already like 17, uh, almost yeah. 18. So I'd spent about a year and a half, two years over there, come back. Luckily, I came back as a minor. Yeah, sorry. I, my bad. I see what happened here. Um, the embassy involvement, I was probably 17 and a half, not 16. Uh, um, okay. so you're an asylum seeker at like 17. Yeah. So, yeah, kind of went around schools trying to sign up to a course and get into an A-level course, which is pretty hard with no academic record. Um, and the Where first in the UK were you? I was in Hayes in London, so like close to Heathrow, uh, Hounslow sort of area. That's like similar um, to Liverpool, right? I'm just throwing yeah. it out. <laughs> 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 but everyone's over there is like... 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like when you say you're from England, it's like, oh, by London, right? It's like, yeah, by, by London. By London. <laughs> but yeah, so what was I? The first school shut me, shut me down completely. That was like a no go. I was like, ah, fuck. Um, so I went to the next one, which was West Thames College. Spoke to admissions. This was already a month into the term having started. Um, and they were like, no, we're not taking new admissions. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, right, well, I'm not moving until I speak to the head of admissions. And they're like, well, you're welcome to wait around. And I was like, okay, that's what I'll do. Sat on the sofa, waited for a while, about an hour. <laughs> and then they let me through. And her name is Nicola Miles. And I spoke to her, kind of explained the whole story. And then I said to her, like, right, if I get 50% in a biology A A a2 exam, mock exam, and 50% in a chemistry one and in a maths one, you'll let me onto the A-level course about GCSEs. Um, so just explain, uh, just explain what like the A-level course stuff is for like people who are not from the UK. Yeah, so A-level is probably all the exams you'll do from the age of 16 to 18 sort of range, and they're the ones that give you the main access to higher education. So universities, stuff like that, it kind of good. You know, depending on what you get in those exams, you'll be able to do one career or another. So obviously, the yeah. higher grade you get, the more it's options like the you're going to have. Day, last stage of school, basically, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and then GCSEs are kind of that standard education diploma sort of thing. So just so you have yeah, the basics, you can speak English, yeah. you can do two plus two, and you know what uh, you know you know what chlorophyll is. Although uh, that's debatable for most people. Okay. <laughs> um so yeah i said you know if i get 50 percent of them in them of you know this is a big bluff you know i didn't i had no idea if i knew what i needed to know i just got back from india um and they said yes i had the mock exams the next morning so i'd gone home and took out this big fucking medical library uh medical book and just started plowing for it all night um, managed to get over about 60 something percent in biology and 50 something in chemistry and maths I just fucked up big time um, yeah there was, I, I think I probably got a negative grade if that's possible um, and I just spoke to the maths guys like man can you please tell her I passed I really need to get into college seriously uh, yeah yeah um, and he is really chill. He he, is, he let me in. <laughs> um, yeah, on track oh. levels. So that was like one step in the right direction. And then I had to move into YMCA, and I was living in a YMCA next to some questionable characters. Um, uh, what's what's a just what's a YMCA? It's kind of like a hostel for yeah. It's like a youth youth hostel youth, essentially. Youth hostel, but from people from kind of screwed up backgrounds um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah you know i remember picking the paper up on the tube in the morning and reading like a uh, young teenager stabbed on don't know what street and it was just down from where i was living i was like oh fantastic you know <laughs> nice little morning read um so yeah i had to do my a levels there and at the same time i was also taking my gcses there and then i was taking my spanish a level externally because they didn't offer it yeah. there so in total that year i was doing for gcses biology chemistry maths physics english i guess and then a levels biology chemistry spanish spanish was kind of a cheat card because i'd grown up in spain so i actually don't study at all for that and it's the one i got the highest grade in 
Um, you still 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 speak Spanish? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, the sentence. Yeah. Eh, ¿Tú puedes hablar español o todavía puedes hablar español? Oh, Gracias. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, I, and at the same time, I had to make up all these petty little weeks that universities require for placements. Mahesh will know about this one. Which, yeah, so yeah. the the UK universities need you to do X amount of experience with animals or in a vet practice to even be eligible for the course. Yeah, it's part of which the is understandable, but <clears throat> quite hard when you need to cram it in. So I was working. Uh, Marks and Spencers, I was doing the A-level course and I was doing placements all at the same time. So it was kind of like, you know, if anything went wrong, the whole plan would just crash. Um, I applied to the universities and obviously an application with a blank academic record doesn't, isn't great. So yeah. most of them turned me down and then I got an offer from Bristol to get onto the Gateway hey. program. Yeah, I still fucked off about the Gateway program because it was a bit like, mm, I don't want to waste another <laughs> year. What's the Gateway, Gateway program? So it kind of gives access to widening participation students from, well, my sort of case or other case, you know, background. So they've had some disadvantages or problems and that's led to a lower exam result or something like that. Um, I didn't think I needed it and the people in the Gateway course knew I thought that as well. Um, so again, it clashed with them quite a lot. Um, but yeah, so I, I got in. That that was the main thing, you know. Yeah. The way I saw it is like I can re I can redo my A levels, which I was <laughs> tempted to do, or I could just get my foot in the door. So you you'd been you'd been in England for like six months at this point. Yeah, and you'd got into vet school, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean that's pretty impressive. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I got my foot in the door with that and. I actually didn't really go to university that year. Uh, I went, I went Croatia, Morocco, Spain. Uh, like I, I'd been given nine thousand pounds as a as a life maintenance cost. I was like nine thousand pounds. If I went over to Morocco, I could live there for five years on this. Um, so yeah, I was just traveling all over, climbing. Um, and then I had the occasional attendance meeting, but you know, the way I saw it is as long as I perform in my exam, you can't say anything. Um, then they brought out this card that I'd never heard of before and it's called professionalism. And apparently that's a big thing in the veterinary world. Um, so I had to start going to things when I got, when I got into vet school, um, which so I did. So once you've done your year of gateway, you, that's when you started. Yeah. Yeah. So I course. finished the year of gateway, passed all my exams got into first year of vet school um didn't really go that year either uh, you know like it, no, it's a great course and stuff but I, there's multiple ways to do it and if you if you're good at studying on your own you can most certainly study for the course on your own and then second so yeah first and second year I just spent most of them traveling, um, getting sponsors, trying to get sponsorship for climbing and mountaineering and developing like more of a <clears throat> documentary photography portfolio. So, you know, anything but being a vet really, which is, but I, you know, I think you need a balance to enjoy vet school. And, yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I don't, no. you know, if I hadn't gone down the route of non-attendance, we wouldn't be here now or I wouldn't be here now. Yeah. Um, well, we told you what the requirement is if you want to stay on the couch. 
you got to complete yeah. score. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm working hard on that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, then I got into third year, did a lot of research and stuff and, you know, um, connected with Helping Rhinos. Um, they're a charity that, you know, help with rhino conservation out in Africa. They'd see me on Instagram from something and they'd drop me a message and like, do you want to come to Kifaru to Premier, meet Jemu and uh, Jojo, uh, Richard as well. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Uh, went down, met Mahesh as well, met Jemu, Jojo, all like some it was oh, really, really so good that was the first. That was the first day you met Jemu? Yeah. 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 Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Yeah, I know it's great. Um, a fateful night in London. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's how I met um, pretty much, you know, two of the oh. people in this meeting. <laughs> we, uh, I had heard <laughs> about Mahesh before. <laughs> before. Say again. There, I had heard about you before from Anna, the friend in uh, common. Uh, yeah, yeah. She's uh, she's a friend I studied with at vet school. <laughs> But things kind of started falling in place naturally there. And, you know, I'd, I'd realized I'd done a lot of climbing, mountaineering and all that sort of stuff. But I was like, well, you've always wanted to do conservation. So maybe you should invest some more time in that. And started ramping up that side of things. And I guess that kind of led us to where we are now on the podcast. That On the couch. On the on couch. The couch. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, conservation couch. That this is what this is called. Oh, yeah, this is a conservation. We haven't actually introduced ourselves, then. <laughs> so, yeah, we're getting to that. Uh, <laughs> no, but is it like just so people it's know who the other build up. Are? It's called suspense. Oh, okay, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've gone around saying oh, Jemu right. Mahesh play. I point, but this means nothing because on my screen it's going to be different now. <laughs> yeah, but. <laughs> That was a bloody good story. Jesus. Yeah. 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 It is, man. Any questions? You've, uh... <laughs> we, should, we, should write a, we should write a book. You should. I was going to say, we need I to get a right to, to man. Um, yeah. I've been meaning to, and actually make a shorter version of it for YouTube, because I have all the pictures from mum. So you could make like a really cool one with a voiceover. I don't, I don't know if it's something people would be interested in, but I've had a few people uh, mention it. So I think people would. It might be worth doing. Oh. Yeah. I've yeah. got a question for you. Um, when they eventually make a movie out of your book, who will play you? Oh, I don't know. Like, without current actors? I mean, I'd love to play know. myself if I'm young enough. Because <laughs> then it would be quite accurate. You know, and I'd have problems filming with me. <laughs> <laughs> arguing um, with the directors no that's not how it happened <laughs> i live this <laughs> um, oh, like, you don't um, need more drama trust me plenty's coming um <laughs> no i i don't know man no idea who do you think should play it i, I actually have no idea about actors names so i don't know you neither i don't know i was hoping you'd answer it for me well, who would play your character? <laughs> yeah, guys, who, who would play, play your it? characters? Come on. Oh, what? I didn't realise this was a four-way conversation. Uh, I thought we were just interviewing you. The Rock, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to think of what Wayne Johnson, Rock. obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Wayne Johnson. So, Jem- Jemmy, what about you? Yeah. The Rock as well. 
Yeah, the rock can play us all. He's got, yeah, he's got a lot, he's got a lot of range. Shot range. Yeah. <clears throat> um, right, he's not really saying Jimmy, what about your story? Sorry? What about your story? Oh, I'm excited. Oh, well, uh, uh, well, I'm excited uh, for my one. <laughs> I think I, I, I think um, my my mind is not very complicated as Jamil, man, for sure. Yeah, to be um, fair, I mean, I don't think any of us are going to reach Jamil. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, you know, my name is uh, James Mwenda. I was I was born raised in Kenya, um, right at the at the foothills of Mount Kenya. Mount Kenya is the tallest, um, the second tallest mountain from Mount Kilimanjaro in in East Africa. So I come very close to. Uh, from the main gate that enters the the park, uh, Mount Kenya National Park, and um, I grew up in a family of five, two girls and two boys. I was the middle one, um, and uh, it was a, a a very poor family. I think um, almost everything was a basic need. I yeah. you know I remember growing up, I struggled with anything, and I think um, school was one of the greatest thing that I desired since I was young because there was this monopoly uh, of a saying that says uh, education is the key to success. So I definitely knew that I wanted to, to go to school and study hard and succeed. Um, pretty much my growing up was all about my mother. She was really, really hardworking, making sure that uh, we hate, we drank. My dad was, uh, you know, an inveterate drunkard, you know, spending time with his friends, drinking the whole day and coming drunk and chasing us away from home. and and uh, spending nights in the cold and all of that. And um, it's just right, chasing you away from home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From, 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 from the house. Like, she would come and, and complain that me and, and my brothers and mom are siding together and you uh, would, like, expel us from the house and we would spend nights in the, in the bushes around our home to wait until right. the morning when he's sober again and take us back again in the house. So it was a it was a difficult upbringing, um, and um, getting food, getting anything that we needed was was really difficult. And I think mom, being so hardworking, uh, always made sure that uh, we had uh, anything that we needed. That included um, uh, going and getting farms, borrowing farms from people where she could farm uh, and uh, and plant some crops and, uh, and, and and be able to feed us or even go to people's farms and, and work in the farms and uh, come back in the evening with the little that she goes just to buy us food and everything. So uh, I, I didn't enjoy the comfort of much when I was, uh, when I was young, but I was, uh, I was determined that uh, I would grow to be, you know, something in, in the future, especially if I work hard in school. Unfortunately, did you have, um, did you have anything in mind or is it just, you just wanted to, Go to school. Well, I think not not until I think when I was six or seven years. That's that's when exactly I knew that I wanted to be in conservation because I think by that time, um, mom was planting uh, the farm that he had borrowed, which is very, which is like, which is like a thousand meters from the park, like it's yeah. adjacent to the national park. And um, g- growing up, you know, um, because that was the only source of livelihood, so we had. Um, we had to go spend the whole day, like a, like a few weeks working on the farm. And elephants came one night and, and they ate our entire farm. Like 
I, I don't know if I should smile or cry. And they swept the entire community's farms. <clears throat> they came like a herd of like maybe 70 elephants. And they swept Oof. anything from sugarcane, cabbages, maize, anything that was edible in yeah. the farm. Like everything, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They don't mess around. And, and yeah, and, and they, they sort of like caused a lot of chaos. And when they, when they started now realizing that they would come and eat the farm because they would come during the night and leave at, the, at dawn before the farmers came. So it became a routine. They would come every day, every day. And, um, and, and we had now serious human wildlife conflicts here. Like so many people are getting harrows and, 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 and people are getting pangas and machetes to just come and, and try to kill the elephants. Some were digging holes to trap them in and have them down. And, and I could see the pain. I remember my mom crying because we had spent three days without food because the elephants came and ate everything in the farm. And, and it hurt me so much to realize the pain that we were going through, you know, you know, simply because of the elephants. And you, you could not come and tell my community that elephants are beautiful. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. it wouldn't make sense at all. And yeah. I think at that age, at, at the age of six, I, I started feeling deep within me that elephants weren't aware of what they were doing. They were just animals. But then my community was suffering. So I started thinking that... Um, maybe someone needs to do something, maybe understand the elephants and come and um, sort of be like a buffer, be in between the community and the elephants. And that's, that's when my desire to, to be in conservation started. And as you, well as you, were, you were thinking of that six years old? Yeah, yeah. Six years old? Yeah, six Damn, years old. You got would, some wisdom, my friend. Yeah. I, I think it was, it was stimulated by the Kenya Wildlife Service rangers who would come because they had guns, they had, you know, uh, you know these jungle uniforms, and uh, ah. they would, you, you would see them come with, with guns and they would, you know, fly fire blanks up in the air. Mm. And, I, and I thought it was cool, even though they wasn't helping much because elephants would have already caused a lot of harm. But what if I went and understood about how to deal with elephants and I can always be around the community to stop that. Mm-hmm. So were yeah. the were the rangers coming and kind of trying to educate people at that stage and educate the community and try and get them involved? Or did you just see them kind of shooting up in there and it's like, oh that's cool, that's what I want to do. No, they didn't they didn't have any education aspects. And I think that's the gap that was there. You know, they would right. they would just be caught and it would take them forever to come because the elephants would have already caused a lot of distraction. And um, when they came, they didn't come and tell anything to the community. They would stay like, you community stay aside, you know, we will come with our Jeep, we will go and scare, you know, scare the elephants back again in the forest. So the elephants would do the same thing again in a different place. You know, yeah. and, and there was no education aspect of trying to educate people. Um, were these rangers from the local community? No, no. They were, they were the Kenya Wildlife Service employees, uh, people from different areas within the, the country. Okay. And I think they also mostly emphasize on, on uh, not mostly on locals, because they can easily collaborate with the locals to cause more harm to the, you know, like allow people to go through, especially when they're locals. Yeah. So, Having a new people in a set helps break a, a bit of, of, of that body. Instead of like having locals talk to the locals, it's, it's sort of, you know, um, something that the, the Rangers haven't been, um, they, couldn't, they couldn't do that. Okay. Uh, so another thing that 
made me desire to be in conservation was because of the poor background that I came from. And I come from Mount Kenya, which is like uh, the route that goes to Mount Kenya. So there was a lot of tourists that came mm. to, 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 to come and hike in Mount Kenya. And um, uh, I always graced, we had, a, we had a single cow in our home that was the source of livelihood, especially anything that we needed. So I would go and graze the cow around the lots and tourists passing by would, would pass and say, hey, Jumbo. And, uh, they would they would give us some biscuits and uh, some some little tips coins that they have left in the car, and uh, I admired that like when I was that because I'm so hungry I'm spending the whole day hungry grazing this yeah. cow and someone comes and gives me some biscuits and some uh, some few coins and I can go and buy a bread for that day so uh, uh, yeah it it really it really affected I desired to be in, in the tourism industry one time because I thought it would be uh, a cool job. And um, I now started working hard in school uh, with the focus of being in conservation at some point. I didn't know so what. So was that, um, when, you, when you decided that you wanted to be in conservation, um, you know, mm. you said like your community, a lot of them would see the elephants as, you know, not as, as almost as like the enemy. How, how did your family and your community take it when you said you wanted to, you know, work in conservation? I think I, I, I told him to my mom, but she was very dismissive. Like, what would a six-year-old, you know, think about elephants? Adults, yeah. the adults in the community are not doing anything with the elephants. Yeah. Um, she, was, she was dismissive, just like any parent who doesn't, you know, and, but, and she, was not, she was so much into helping us grow and even supporting our dreams because yeah. I think she was struggling with with five children and 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 just to even give food for the day was was a bit of a challenge so she wasn't so keen in listening to stuff like you know your visions and your dreams i must i must confess but she was like if i can i will take you to school do what you want i you know i, yeah. I can so, so she was dismissive just, the moment i mentioned that just to give a bit of perspective what sort of like age were you at now were you in school were you just working like how old were you around now uh when, when i'm talking to my mom that i was i was i was well when six, you saw the and rangers that. and you know after that and you, he was like six seven you still yeah, i was seven. six seven yeah six seven yeah and that's the time that we were starting more basically starting school here in kenya yeah. you know sort of like uh it would now start going I, I think i started going to school and so at that time i was in nursery school which is like you, you you go to school a few hours and go home because you're just a young one, um, you know, at that time, people would go, you know, very late in, in years, even up to eight years in, in the first uh, nursery school in Kenya. So at that time, I was just a kid, I think, going to nursery school, and I would go to the farm to spend the day with, the, with my mom working on the farm at that particular. So at that time, that gave me a motivation to, 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 to work hard in school. So even at my at nursery school, at class one, I think in Kenya, we study in in, you know, we start from class one to class eight and then go to high school, which is, uh, you know, so the secondary school. So I worked so hard, but it, it, it wasn't possible to be in school all the time because of school fees or I, I lacked uniform or I lacked, you know, the basic needs that needed me to yeah. be in school. So I was on and off school most of the times, even though I was a very bright kid and, and, and my teachers loved me and uh, they, they knew that I had a big vision if I worked for uh, my education so hard. So 
I worked my way through primary school, working on people's farms on weekends just to buy my uniform and, and all of that until I finished yeah. my I, uh, primary school in 2000. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I couldn't, I couldn't join a uh, high school again because then my parents could not uh, afford to take me to the high school. Uh, my drunk dad came home that day and I spoke to him and told him that I want to uh, go to high school. And he told me, like, you know, don't be stupid. You are, you are a grown-up man. You're, you know, in our culture, we get, you know, I was, I, I was grown into a man. I was circumcised and I, I become a man in our culture. So I should go and find life for myself. So I got so stressed. <laughs> I, I, I cried a lot. I, I remember even standing on a bridge thinking to to end my life because I think um yeah because all my I was I was thirteen. I was that I was thirteen. Yeah. So um I was so desperate because I knew education would give me a light for my family, would help would help would help (laughs) my community, would help my pa my mom and my younger sisters. Maybe if I studied I would get a good job and stuff like that. So um when I realized I can't go to school, all my peers have gone to school and they're even ridiculing me because I was very smart in class. Like, oh, it's so sad that you are working so hard to just not go to high school. And that was frustrating me. So I, I stood on a bridge deciding, like, should I end my life? Because I, I never had worn a shoe. I didn't have, I had only one pair of clothes. I had nothing with me. And, like, my life is so bleak. My future is so bleak. I don't see any future. I... But I remember praying, like I prayed and said, like, man, I, I don't want to die. Like, there is a gift to be alive. And, and I realized that like, being alive is a big opportunity. So I, I went back in my house and, um, and, and I spoke to my cousin who was working far away uh, as, a, as a gardener in people's farms to, to get me a job. Just so that I can be far away from home and never see my dad uh, anymore because I felt like he was failing to do that. So... I went far away, uh, like like 50 kilometers away from home. Uh, I got into a, a rich lady, a, a widow, um, who was giving me a job. Unfortunately, she paid me um, just like um, five, uh, you know, $50 a month, uh, which was so little to even survive. Yeah. I quitted after a month. I went to another lady who was also a friend to her and they discussed me when I was hearing on form like, you know, uh, and she also, she paid me $60 a month. I worked for her again for another month and I decided to go back home, you know, again, but I, my, not, not in my home because I never even had a house to stay at home. So I went and got a job to a, a village man who was like a, a good man. And, uh, I worked for him for eight years. So I had a eight year yatas from primary school to high school. So I worked as a gardener, you know, plucking tea, coffee, you know, cutting fodder for the cows and everything else. And, um, and in any manual job that was available. And, um, I think that that was the most difficult moment of my life, realizing that I, I would never be in school. My, my colleagues would come and, and, um, and, and, and tell me the stories of school and how they see their future going. And I was like, my future is only here, you know, doing this manual work. And that had an emotional toll on me. Uh, I couldn't talk to him because my job being like um, that person, it's, it's, the, it's the lowest job in our society. So no one spoke to you, no one respects you, no, no one even, you know, has any kind of 
you know, attribution to you. So I left, I lived that for those eight years, I lived that life where it was my own world. But um, in 2008, we had a new president who came with a decree that you would provide free education, uh, free high school education. So at the age of 23, um, I decided to go back to high school. And um, it was a very challenging move because I'm going to study with 14-year-olds and 13-year-olds yeah. who are very fresh minds in school. And uh, these are the people that I was teaching yeah. in, in Sunday school and, and, and te- you know, like they were like my children, I would say. But I yeah. made a choice, like I want a better future. So I went back to high school and, and, and started working. I failed miserably in, in my first year of high school. Like I got almost nothing on my exam, but I was so motivated to work towards my success. So <laughs> the second year that year, I did better and I, I loved biology. What was, it, um, what was it like that first day when you, got, when you went to school? So you, I mean, you'd waited eight years. What was that first day? What was that first day like? Um, it, it was very stressing. Like, I didn't know what to expect. And, and, and these young ones were laughing at, 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 yeah. at me. But we, had, we were a set of boys who decided, who had missed an opportunity. Oh, okay. and we decided to go back. So we were like three or four people. But I had beards. And they would laugh at us. Like, look at these old men coming back to school <laughs> at this age. And, um, and I don't know how they're going to make. We would even fail to, to fix a simple algebra. Uh, equation like we couldn't we couldn't understand mm. algebra what it is and yeah and we we were made like laughing stock because we failed miserably in any in any lesson and that that was challenging uh i know at its worst because you expect you know to do better yeah. but you're not because of circumstances so i worked that by the time i was in that year i was getting good grades like i was i was very good in biology um i loved i loved mathematics and i loved um uh, chemistry, uh, but we didn't have very good teachers for that. So I sort of failed in my final exams with, with physics and, and chemistry. But uh, I was determined to to make and work very hard. So in my final year, I I got a good grade, which is like 56 points. You require to have like 60 points in Kenya to get a, a regular university acceptance where the government pays like three quarters of your of your of your fees so getting a 56 meant that i would go to the university yes but i would have to pay my way to the university and that wasn't possible so i i went back again for another year to see whether i would get a good grade but i I failed i got the same grade again and uh, i decided that was it with my education i had Mm -hmm. done all i could there's nothing more i could have for so i went back to the man who had employed me and How old so were you at this point, sorry? I was um, 20, 20, 26, I think. 26, yeah, okay. 26, yeah. Because I started oh, school when I was 23, and I think that's, it, I, I was 27, sorry. Okay. When I, when I, yeah. So I went back to him and told him, like, now I can come and work in your farm. I, I have completed my high school, at least get me a job. Uh, because he worked in Opejita Conservancy. That was a lot. Uh, uh, right. So all those years I was working for him, he was working. He is like, he's very, very good. He's like the head of, um, he's, he's a good engineer. He is very good with engines. So he works with maintenance of everything that works in Opejita in terms of mechanical <laughs> aspects. So I went to him and told him like, please find me a job where you work because this, this is my passion. This, this is what I want to do. So I went and, uh, 
I told him uh, that I, you know, he told me like, wait. And so he went, he, he, he called me a, a job a few months later as a T-boy. So I started as a T-boy uh, and cleaning the offices and all of that. And then uh, I saw a post for a ranger uh, and I uh, applied to be a ranger. And um, the management was very reluctant giving me the job because my grades were so good. So they thought I should have gone to the university, but I pleaded with them so much to allow me to, uh, go into the bush and, and, and do what I loved. So they gave me a chance. And I went into the bush and I worked so hard. And, uh, and then I was picked to, to, to come and, uh, and, and, and now work with the Northern White Chinos, where yeah. uh, I am working till now. Awesome. That is good. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, fucking hell, man. <laughs> I feel very inspired. Yeah, where do you think... Where do you think that drive comes from? Because clearly, you know, it doesn't matter how many times you get knocked down. It seems like you keep coming back for more. So but where, where do you think you got that from? I think since I was, I think the troubles that I'd gone through as a young boy, um, you know, made me mature when I was very young. Like I... I started seeing things in a different perspective. I, 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 I confessed to myself that I'll never drink because it made my dad a, a bad parent. I made some life choices that were, uh, were because of the living that I lived. But I also realized um, since when I was young that um, being alive alone is, a, is, is, a, is an opportunity, you know? Yeah. I think you, you are better alive. You, you, just, you just need to be alive. Anything, anything can change, you know? The future can be better. You, even, even if it's a disease or it's poverty, you can get out of it as long as you are living. So there is the grace of being alive. And I understood that the moment I was about to take my life away because of the trouble that I was going through. So it has shaped me to, to realize that being alive is an opportunity by itself. Yeah. And, and I need to seize it. And I need to work what I can. And what I can't, I just, I just, I just you know, leave it. So it's, it's amazing that now, you know, the community that looked down on me at somewhat now have, have a position in the society that they, they can sit down and, and listen to me. And, oh, and, awesome. and, and, and sort of because, you know, of this, some of the achievements that I've achieved in, you know, all the places that I've been all over the world, you know, talking about. So I think sort of I've been an inspiration to so many because the whole community knows me and now I've struggled with my young age. And I think... Um, it's that strong conviction about life that has dropped me. What's your mum think now? So when you said um, you were going to do conservation and now you actually, you know, arguably are very, very high up the ladder. She, she's very proud. She's very proud. I think um, I completely understood. Uh, she was very overwhelmed as a mum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Her priorities bringing food to yeah. the yeah yeah man yeah i yeah, mean just imagine her with yeah. us to sacrifice for five kids yeah. and, and uh, a drunk husband and yeah my she, dad was like i was like the senior kid in the family because he comes yeah. drunk home he has to eat he has to drink he has to uh, all this is because of my mama so she's a strong woman i think you didn't want to bother her with education stuff and when she can't yeah. even get food enough for your table so i completely understood her when yeah. at that time and now she's so proud that you know uh her boy is uh you know is, is trying to do something good oh, well. well he's on the couch now so 
I'm sure she's in her cool, Jamie. You've reached the pinnacle. You're at the top. <laughs> um, how you know you said like um, one of the things that inspired you was your the way your community looks upon the elephants. How how does your community look at look at conservation and animals now? Uh, luckily, in um, uh, I think in 2015, the government came up with a fencing plan because our our area is like we, we, we plant quite a good number of crops, you know. Sorry, in our area, and the government came with a fencing plan and they fenced uh, parts of the Mount Kenya region where we had like very serious conflicts with with elephants, and sort of like now my dream uh, of coming back to conservation and helping my community was was answered. That's why now I fully uh, shifted to to stay in Opetita Conservancy where I work. So uh, we don't have conflicts now, but. I, I come back to my community I, uh, last year and this year I had planned to go to all my community. I went last year and I gave talks. I had community engagements, telling them the importance of wildlife and all of that. And uh, I was happy to see their responses and their shift of understanding and wanting to know more um, about what they can do to make our environment a better place. Ah, that is pretty cool. Hopefully we'll get to meet Mama Jemu at some point, eh, man? Mama Wanda. Yeah, yeah. Mama yeah. Wanda. <laughs> yeah, man, yeah. Well, definitely, when we come and hike in Mount Kenya, we are very close, definitely. We'll pl- well, even if when we come to Kenya, we'll plan to come and visit my... Well, it's all happening, man. Like, it will, I think, you know, this year I'll be in Kenya at some point. I don't know about you guys, but you're all invited. <laughs> if if I could pay for it, everywhere. I'm consumable. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because it's called something to me. Yeah, yeah, true. Mount Kenya, that is, oh, oh, that'd be awesome. The first, the first in-person conservation couch, the couch summit. The couch summit. Uh, <laughs> that is, that's pretty cool, Jimmy. Um, what was I going to ask you? Um, yeah, see, so you know, when you started working with the the rhinos, was that were the rhinos always something that you wanted to work with, or was that just the opportunity came and you you, you went with that? No, I, I knew much about elephants, not rhinos, though, because rhinos now are not scattered all over Kenya like they were before. They're just confined in in just specific areas. And um, when I went, I I developed a passion for rhinos because I I realized how endangered they are, especially when I came and learned about the Northern White Rhinos. What was this, um, when, when you first started working, what was the situation like with rhinos at that time? Poaching was still escalating. I mean, it was still a challenge. Um, we were losing rhinos to, to poaching at most. And uh, at that time, there was a lot of talk about why we need to protect the rhinos, especially the black rhinos, but most importantly, the Northern White Rhinos. I think that time, yeah. Um, there were only eight left uh, mm. by the time I came to start uh, working with them. And um, I, I, I just went, it just went so deep within me. I took that as a very big burden on behalf. I took it as a responsibility for me for what had been done to the rhinos. And I decided to um, use my life and secure my time to work the very best I can. So, I never knew about rhinos before, but when I came and worked as a, as a, as a bush patrolman for two years, working in the bush and uh, tracking rhinos every day and making sure they're safe and they're protected and there's no poachers, uh, and learning now about the northern white rhinos, that I think shifted my whole 
yeah. passion for conservation. And uh, it took a, a very deep toll on me and I decided to, to, to now put my life into their protection. Do you have any, um, you know, before you started working, you know, uh, really closely with um, Sudan and the other rhinos, did you have any like um, rhino encounters whilst you were in the bush that are quite like memorable? Oh man, yeah, you know, geez, yeah. Being, being a ranger is, is, I think, the riskiest, is one of the riskiest jobs I can see in the planet. I think um, those two years are full of experiences of near death, that I, I would see this was death at some point because you're, the rhinos we are protecting are not captive. They are wild, they are wild rhinos living. You know, we have the largest population of black rhinos in eastern Central Africa. So, yeah, and black rhinos, are the, they're the most dangerous of the, oh, man, of the yeah. rhinos. They are very mean so, in nature. So uh, I remember one time we were, uh, we were, I, you know, I was like, I think six or seven months old at work and uh, I was to lead the group to go and find a rhino. And um, I wasn't so experienced. So yeah. I saw the footprints, which is a good uh, way to track, a, you know, this is the most basic way of tracking a rhino. It was very fresh. We started very early in the morning at around six. So it was very fresh because there was dew and you could follow the footprints. So I looked at the footprints and followed the footprints without even, without even minding, you know, anything else because I was so focused on the rhino. And, and who tells you we were like four guys and uh, I, I sort of lost track of, of, the, of the footprints at some point. So the time I, I, I lifted up my eyes uh, I find myself looking face to face with a black rhino, a bull. <laughs> there, was, there was there was a notorious bull that um, that, that that was called Baluki in in the conservancy. <laughs> it still it, it still is. It's still so massively aggressive. And so we were looking at each other face to face. He oh, was waiting man. for the white lion to put his horn into my body because I was like five <laughs> meters away from him. <laughs> so <laughs> he started coming towards me and I turned and I knocked my friend uh, who was just next to me and we all f fell down and the rhino was coming <laughs> up. So we had to m make sure that by the time, because when it started charging, I took a turn, so that confused him. And then I, hit, I knocked my friend and then we, we ended up. So I woke up, we woke up quickly and started running up the same direction that we are. And this bull is very notorious that he can follow your footprints as well oh. to charge you. So he started <laughs> running tracking. towards us. Yeah. Oh man, like that was so, an horrible day. Um, that was an horrible day. <laughs> <laughs> from what from what I've seen in uh, in Nepal, what I've heard is at least out there, the rhinos more than impaling you with the horn, they'll stomp and or stomp on you and bite you. Is it the same for the African rhinos? No, um, we haven't seen they... them biting us, but we've seen them using their horns because right. the horns are very sharp. You know, uh, the, yeah, the Africans yeah. ones are very fond of sharpening them and making really sharp. So what they do is yes. that they will gorge you with the horn yeah. and they will lift your eye up, toss you in the air, bring you down and toss you up again. So if, right. if it gets you on the ribs, eh, you know, you're, you're done because this is like... Uh, <laughs> 1.8 ton animal so it's getting on your body it's gonna yeah it's gonna punch all your body yeah. parts so we, we have seen them not trampling but only gouging people and bring them up um just, and then i go on oh uh, i was only gonna say just like in case um anyone who is listening to this isn't 
very caught up on who Sudan was. Could you give oh, yeah, that's a, what brief, gonna, uh, yeah. a brief? I was going to say yeah, how yeah, how you were involved part, in that, and obviously became, like, to the uh, point where we kind of met all of each other. Because I, I feel like that stage, well, well, we got mm-hmm. to that bit, but you didn't elaborate too much. Well, uh, I, I think um, every, you know, everyone and much of the world knew who Sudan was. I think we all came to the realization that Sudan um, was the last surviving male Northern White China. It was declared in 2015 as the last of its kind uh, when another male in, in, the, in the zoo, in San Diego Zoo, died, Angalifu. Um, and uh, it's, it's because of the, uh, you know, the political conflicts and, and poaching that may, led the Northern White Rhinos to, be, um, to decline in population. So when I came to work with them, we had only four rhinos in Opejita Conservancy and seven all over the world. And they all died, leaving only the four we had in Opejita Conservancy. And I came to work at that particular time. And um, Sudan was captured in Southern Sudan. Um, in, in you know in the 80s as a as a, as a young rhino uh, living there, uh, unfortunately even taking him to the zoo didn't help with the breeding and that's why he was brought back again to Kenya. Um, ah, where, right. where 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 I didn't know yeah, he was yeah. from. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah that's why he got the name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. I mean, it makes that's, sense, but I didn't know. Yeah, that's that's how he got his name as Sudan, Sudan the rhino. So he was moved to Kenya and uh, I came to work with him I think somewhere in 2013 end of 2013-ish and um, I felt so sorry for a rhino being declared the last of his kind. Did you, I didn't feel, know um, that happened. did you feel a lot of pressure working with them knowing that they were the last ones? Yeah, I, I, I felt... That's a lot a of pressure to... Of you know, yeah. The world's watching, yeah. the world's watching, watching you guys basically. And they're so like, you know, as any successful or positive thinking person, you don't want to be in a project that you know is bound to fail you know you don't want to go to school knowing that you definitely fail you don't want to watch at a species that is on the verge of being extinct with no hope of coming back and we're not talking about a small animal we're talking about a a rhino two and a half animal you know declared yeah and i think that has had an emotional toll on me and Mm. uh I, i took it so personally i I, I even went beyond my work. I, I realized that I, I needed to do something more than just feed them carrots and bananas every day. Yeah. And um, that's when I started sharing my insights to visitors who came to come and see uh, the rhinos. And uh, at some point, I also started sharing on social media using the platforms. You know, I never knew what Facebook was or that, but I came later to realize that I could use. Uh, because I would, I would look, especially at Sudan, when he was declared as a lad, I would, I would look him in the eyes every day, feeding him in the evening was my favorite time with him. And I would ask, like, what, what would the last of an animal tell humanity? What, what would a rhino that has been pushed down to be the last of his kind? If he was a given a stadium in, let's say, Anifield, and there's delegates mm. all over the world, and he's addressing them as the last of his kind, what would he tell the world? And these are these are some of the questions. That, that is a good question. Sunk, sunk so deep. And and I realized that I needed to do something. You know, I I didn't. I needed to. I needed to be his voice. And and somewhere in 2015, when I was feeding him in the evening some carrots, I I saw tears dropping his eyes. I saw Sudan was dropping tears in his eyes, and I. It, it, it hurt me so much. Like I also, I, I also shed tears because you know people say that animals don't have feelings, so they don't cry. But 
I realized like, why would a rhino shed tears? And, and, uh, and I remember going to him and petting him and saying, hey buddy, I promise you that I'm going to do the best I can to be your voice. I know you have so much emptiness that you can empty to the world. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm not so educated. I'm, so, I'm not so smart. I don't know what to do it, but I know I must do something for you. Yeah. So I purpose to do that. So I went into social media sharing my thoughts, you know, and, and I think someone identified with that, especially when Sudan died in 2018 and I lost my, I wrote my last letter to him telling him that I had done the best I could. It got, I think, over 12,000 shares and, and all of that. So oh, wow. out of that, someone picked me um, and wanted me to be a guest speaker for, a, uh, for an event in South Africa. And I think that's where... Uh, a sense of a different direction of my life came through. So I went to South Africa as a guest speaker uh, for an organization called Dancing for Rhinos. I also did a, a few school talks with uh, schools and in, in, the, in the communities. And uh, it sort of like now paved the way. I went to Hong Kong, um, alone to, to give school talks and also be a guest speaker for a, a gala event as well. I went to the UK for the first time, um, did school talks and... Uh, I was also a guest speaker at the Royal Geographical Society. Um, um, and then uh, I, I went to, to, to the States and um, we were there for a month um, doing the screening of the film Kifaru. Uh, you realize that that's, that's, that's a different story, but we decided to make a story of Sudan in the course of working with them yeah. through our time. So uh, because of the passion that I had, I met another young guy from the States who was also very passionate of doing something. And we decided to make the film. Uh, his name is David. So we decided to record what the life of the last known animal on the planet, because that's what we know, how his life used to be before he died. And it was for the sake of teaching people about extinction and that we are watching and witnessing it every day. So I went there for a month to do the screenings and, um, I met thousands and thousands of people because the screenings were always packed. People wanted to see the film. So we were doing talks and all of that to people. And then I came back again to the UK. And that's, that's, that's when I met, um, uh, I met Jamil and, and, and Mahesh at the, at the hey. screening uh, in the, in the <laughs> UK uh, um, during that, that festival circuit of the film, courtesy of uh, the Helping Rhinos event that was organized with the Alpha Center. So... But that's where I'm happy to have lived oh. my six-year-old dream. I think um, yeah. I feel so, you know, personally, I feel that I have achieved, you know, more than yeah. what I thought I would have been compared with, you know, the typical understanding of qualifications and stuff like that. I've been able to offer more than even if I had a paper I could have been offered. So I feel happy that my, my, my child dream has has, has become more yeah. reality. Yeah. And now I'm here in the couch talking to you. Yeah, now like, you're on the couch. You oh, can tell. <laughs> um, and yeah. um, uh, uh, you're still working with the Rhinos now? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, just the remaining, I'm, just the remaining two females? Two left, yeah. eh? Yeah. yeah. Ninja. yeah. So sad. Yeah. Um, what's the situation? Just to update like anyone who's listening. What's the situation? Uh, um, with the, now? The, the situation uh, with the Northern White Chinos, the only hope now is to try artificial reproductive techniques, uh, which now in vitro fertilization has been done. Uh, they are on the final phase of the in vitro fertilization. They collected eggs. They have um, 
inseminated the eggs with the semen at the, at the lab. They have created embryos that have you know, been uh, frozen in liquid nitrogen. And I think they're now waiting to, to uh -huh. do the embryo transfer to uh, surrogate moms that we already have. So we have like six female southern white trainers that are waiting to be surrogate moms. So uh -huh. we have uh, our toes and fingers crossed um, that this is going oh. to be the remedy to save the northern white trainers. And uh, I think when we have a baby, are you guys coming? Is the couch coming for a baby shower? Oh, yeah, my baby right? on the couch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, heck 100%. yeah. So just real quick on that, that's, that's crazy. So potentially a southern white rhino is going to give birth to a northern white rhino. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Mind blown. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the northern and the southern are just uh, subspecies of each other. So yeah, yeah. Um, the Easter cycles are the same and the gestation periods yeah. are the same. So the big prospect is that uh, they're going to cut the pregnancy to term and give birth to a bouncing northern white rhino. Um, yeah, fingers crossed. Very cool. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, definitely baby shower. We'll oh. somehow, we'll do something for sure. <laughs> okay. That'd be awesome. Yeah. That'd be so good. Oh. Right, um, are you up? I think he's, oh man. I feel like we should have made Jamil and Jimmy go last because it's, it's hard mine's to follow gonna, up. Mine's not going to be too long, I don't think. It's hard to follow up. Um, <laughs> All right, so my name is Mahesh. Um, I'm a vet from the UK. Um, so my story is uh, it's not as um, complicated as Jamil's <laughs> or um, maybe not as inspiring as Jamil's, but yeah, it's my story, so I'll tell yeah. it. Um, so I grew up in Birmingham in the UK, which is, you know, you guys probably don't know Birmingham is like a it's it's the second biggest city in the UK but it's um it's very much like a working class city it's, it's um it's one of the more diverse cities in the UK so you've got it's kind of like a cultural melting pot really you got a lot of a lot of um my immigrants during like the 80s and the 70s and 60s came to Birmingham so you got a lot of people from West Indies a lot of people from Africa a lot of people from Asia um, they all came here and it was around the time when you know the industrial revolution so you got a lot of like big factories and places like that. so it's very much like a working class city um, and my parents <clears throat> so I'm a first generation um, in the UK so my my mom and her family they moved from Kenya so my mom was born in Nairobi and my grandma was born in Nairobi um, but they had to leave pretty suddenly in the, I want to say it was in the 80s. I can't, I'd have to fact check that. But I think it was around the 80s when they had to leave pretty suddenly because um, being being from India, they weren't, at the time, the, the climate had changed where they weren't too welcome, so they had to leave. Um, so they moved to the UK. Um, but two years prior to that, two years prior to when my mum moved, um, my granddad moved two years before that and he came on his own. He basically, he was a teacher in Kenya but, um, because he knew what the situation was like. He, he left early and he came to work in a factory over here in the UK. He slept on his friend's couch and basically just worked in a, 
It was in it was in a factory here in Birmingham. And he worked here for two years. Basically, just he'd send money back home. So it was the classic kind of classic immigrant story in the UK. You know, he earn all his money here and then send it all back back home to Kenya um, for my mom and her siblings and uh, my grandma. Then eventually they all moved. They came here and moved to the UK. Um, and my dad. It was an arranged marriage between my mom and my dad, which is quite. It's quite um, for their generation, and well, it's still for a lot of Indians and Asians. It's quite, quite a normal thing. Um, so he moved from India, and he came here. Um, he was when he was in India. He was, you know, he was a scientist. But when he came to England, none of his qualifications were recognised. So he kind of just had to work wherever he could um, to provide to provide for our family. And then me and my brothers were born here, so um, you know the, we didn't, you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. But it's, I guess it's all relative because you know, when you listen to Jamie's story, then you know, it's, we didn't have it as bad as that. But relative to my environment in the in Birmingham, you know, we were very much like, like I said, working class family. So, and it was a classic kind of a classic Indian family where, from from the very beginning, um, religion was quite a is quite a big part of our upbringing and um, we're Hindu. So one of like the, one of the core beliefs that we were always taught from young was, you know, you have to treat every living being as if God resides in them. So we grew up vegetarian. We never ate meat. So that was always kind of a core in my, in my beliefs was I was always taught that, you know, you have to see God in everything. So that's how you should treat every living being. Um, and also growing up, obviously I was, I was living in a city, so I didn't really have, I didn't have any pets. So I didn't have the bush to go to. I didn't have a jungle to go to. I didn't have any exposure to animals. So my only exposure when I was growing up was the TV. So, you know, as, as with most people our age, Steve Irwin was, you know, I was glued to him. I was glued to David Attenborough. All these, just anyone I could see on the TV, I was glued to it. And, um, you know, being, a, being an Indian kid, I was quite good at maths and science because you have to be. So kind of that, 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 uh, that love, for, love for animals was kind of innate in me from young. There wasn't like a, I don't have like a specific moment that I can say um, sparked it, but it was just always kind of there. Um, and so, but growing up, um, growing up in an Indian family, you know, being a vet or being involved in conservation or anything in that realm is not really, nobody really does it. It's not a very common thing. It's not very, it's not seen as, it's not seen as a, you know, as a profession that's, um, looked upon highly because, you know, a big part of Asian culture is, is you want to put yourself in a position where you garner a lot of respect, you know, what other people think it matters. So growing up, um, you know, we we're always kind of, it was the classic Indian thing of, oh yeah, you know, you can either become a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, or a dentist. Those are kind of the, the things that they'd always aspire for you to be. Which, um, you know, on one hand, I kind of understand because my, my family, they've come from, you know, they've, they've come from very little and they just want you to, you know, 
educate yourself to the best and um, put yourself in the best position where you can just you know look after yourself so i understand it but that was kind of that was it was a very narrow-minded field for growing up um and i was always the one out of me and my brothers that you know with the sciences and the maths and all those sort of subjects i was just quite naturally quite good at them so it <coughs> always it always felt like that was probably they they wanted me to go down that direction um and the area that I grew up in in Birmingham was it was um, it was a very like rough area. So you know, you'd um, not everybody would take school very seriously. You know, there was a lot of other things going on outside of school. I'm not gonna um, you know not gonna divulge too much on any of my friends, but uh, <laughs> um, change the names. <laughs> so, so, so Jemu, he was the worst of them all. He, um, <laughs> um, so it's it's quite it's um it's quite a strange upbringing in terms of like when you look at it from the outside, the community that I grew up in, it's it's like a very it's very working class, and everybody's kind of um, you know it's. People don't really look that far into the future in terms of like, you know, if you educate yourself, you know, how like Jeremy, you said that for you, education was so important and you knew it was something that was going to propel your future. Over mm-hmm. here, it's people, don't, people just take it for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe because we just got the luxury of education from it's just this, you know, it's here because we, we live in England. Um, so people don't really take it that seriously. So you kind of get a lot of kids that either drop out of school or, you know, they get into, you know, they get, they get into other things outside of school or they just want to get a job straight away. So they might become, you know, just do anything from working in a shop. You say Birmingham's or, quite good to pursue second. those alternatives. Yeah, Birmingham's quite good <laughs> to pursue those alternatives. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, I, 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 I strayed away from it, but, um, a lot of my friends, um, maybe not. Um, but kind of because of where I, because of my family, like, um, they were always, they would always drill into me, like, you know, education, education. So I was always kind of very wary of, you know, I may not have liked school and I may have just wanted to mess around, but I knew that, you know, I had to, I still had to do well. So just to give myself something to, um, something to fall back on um and that you know that that niggling kind of that animal interest was always just there in the back of my mind it was always there i never lost it or anything but you know as you grow up and there's other distractions going on you kind of lose a bit of you you lose a bit of focus on that um and then when it came round to so around the time that um i was doing my a levels um so which is like when you in england when you're when you get to about 16, you do kind of your end of school exams. So that's like Jamil said, it's kind of the stage <laughs> at 16 where once you've done your GCSEs, you can leave school and you can just you know, do it, go and get a job, you can do whatever you want. Um, or if you want to do your A-levels, which is 16 to 18, then that's, um, that's essentially your last stage of school and then you can go on to do university. Um, so that's choosing your A-levels is, it's very important if you want to go down a certain career path because your A-levels will, will determine what you can apply for at university. So, you know, if you don't choose the right subjects, for example, with vet school, they want, they want uh, maths, 
physics, biology, chemistry. I think those are those are the requirements. Those yeah. are the main ones. Yeah. Yeah. So if you haven't if you haven't ones. got if you haven't got A levels in that, then it's um it's uh, you can't apply for it. So it's, so at sixteen, you've got a um you've got to kind of had a good idea of what you wanna what do you wanna do. Um, <laughs> which at the time I didn't really know. I knew I wanted to do A-levels, obviously, and I knew I wanted to go to university because, you know, that's what I'd always been taught, and my brothers had been going to university, um, and I never really... really needed to beat them, no? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was definitely, like, competitive. <laughs> we're, we're four brothers, so everything's a competition. Um, right. What did know, they I do? Uh, my oldest brother, he's a, he did law, um, and now he's a barrister. Um, and then my second older brother, he did English at university, but now he um, he runs his own kind of like life coach company. Does like life coaching for yeah. for people. Um, and then like my cousins, one was a doctor and the other one was an optician. So you know, everyone in my family had gone on to do higher education. A lot of my mm. friends might not have, but my family did. So that was always there. I definitely wanted to do it. Um, I just didn't know. I didn't know what. And this was at the time where there was a. Um, this was at a time where <clears throat> I'd kind of. I was kind of stuck between. I used to love doing art at school. I loved like drawing and I loved all that sort of stuff. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll become an architect. Uh, hey. <laughs> yeah. That was oh, actually my man. first. <laughs> Could have been different. <laughs> Get on the tradition. Um, <laughs> could have been different. Could have been different. Could have been the same. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Um, so I was kind of like literally every week, I was like, oh, maybe I'll be an architect. Okay, maybe I'll be an engineer. I just didn't know. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, but I knew that, you know, if I just did the sciences and I did, did my maths, I'd, I'd, I'd set myself up to be able to choose something. Um, and eventually, kind of, my, my brother sat me down. He was like, you know, you've always wanted to. You know, work with animals. Want to just just do veterinary? Um, the reason I was so reluctant to get into veterinary is because at the time, living where I'm from, uh, I had I didn't know any vets. I didn't know anybody in that field, and it was kind of seen as like a an out of reach profession um, for the community I was in. Like when I asked my school, like, oh, you know, I think I might, you know, thinking about becoming a vet. It was. Uh, he, he just turned around. He goes, "No one's ever applied to that here. No one ever does that sort of stuff. So you're, you're on your own. You're, I, I can't help you out." Um, and you know, if, and I grew up in a community where, like, if I tell my friends back then, anyway, if I tell my friends, you know, oh, I might become a vet. They're like, "Oh, so you like animals then? Oh, <laughs> oh you like animals? You know, just like it was like the cool, the, yeah, the cool thing to the cool thing to do. Um, and the vet was such a. It's quite like a. Obviously, it's a really hard, it's a hard um, degree to get into, but was, there was just no point of reference for me because I didn't know anybody who did it, and it just seemed like something that was too out of reach, and too expensive, mm-hmm. and too just above my. It's part of it's part of a community that's not my community. Um, mm-hmm. But my brother just he basically just sat me down. and He goes, "What? But why? Why not just do it? It's obvious that's what you want to do." Um, it might be hard to get it, but you know, once you've dis- made a decision of what, where your destination is, everything else, everything else will fall into place. You just need to know which which way you're going. Um, so at that point, I was like, okay, you know, what, I'm just gonna, 
I decided now, I think I was about 17 at this point. Um, and also it was a difficult decision to make because when I was going to university, it was the, it was the, the year where if I decided to go to university and do a different course, um, I would have been able to go a bit earlier. And that was the last year in the UK where the, the fees were around three, 3,000 pounds a year. Um, whereas if I wanted to become a vet, I needed to take an extra year out and do another A-level in chemistry because I just didn't have that. And that meant if I went the year after, it was £9,000 a year. So it's obviously a massive, the, the fees were triple. If I wanted to become a vet, I had to pay triple what, um, what I'd have to do for anything else. Um, so that was obviously a big decision because, you know, it's a lot of money. Uh, so I was very reluctant, but, you know, eventually I decided, okay, you know, that's, that's the way it's going to be. And then, yeah, since then, it's, um, since, since I made that decision, everything got a lot easier. It just felt a bit right, you know. I did what I had to do at school, um, got my A-levels, um, went to vet school. And then vet school was just, you know, it's a completely different world to, to <laughs> as Jamil knows. It's, um, yeah. Well, I was uh, going to ask you, once you got into vet school, coming from your background in Birmingham, Obviously, you know, there's quite a bit you know, of a stigma of what sort of people go to vet school. And to an extent, it's quite true in the UK, at least. Um, how did you feel? Yeah, so like, um, you know? uh, yeah, a vet school, because I, I mean, I just saw the other day, um, I think veterinary science has the lowest percentage of ethnic minorities. I think something like 3% yeah. ethnic minorities study to be a vet in the UK. Um, and it's very much like a white you know, higher class thing yeah my first day was like <laughs> you know I'd come from you know when, when I went to school as well it was like it was just you know black brown Asians everyone <laughs> like, the minorities were white people in my school what? Um, so like, that's that's where I grew up and so I come to Bristol and you know I don't see anyone that looks like me I think there was one other Indian girl in my course, but that was it out of like 120 people. And I just remember I, I walked into the lecture hall and I just see, just like, see all these people. And I was like, wow. I was just, I, it was, it was quite like a, the first couple of months was a bit of like a culture shock for me. Cause it was just a, you know, it was an environment where I'd just never been. It was, you know, people from like private schools and really like well off backgrounds, you know, they just, it's just a very different, um, different community that, to what I had. Um, not to say that they weren't, but like, you know, not to say they weren't good people, it was just very different. So it took me, it took me a while to kind of adjust and, um, you know, understand these people and know how to, how to interact and um, just, you know, just be myself. You know, but mm-hmm. that, I think that took a while. For a while, I think I kind of had it as a bit of a chip on my shoulder. I was kind of like, I. Oh, I'm the kid from Birmingham, you know. Yeah. Um, it was a bit of a chip on my shoulder for a while, but um, once you learn to look past that, and you know, like you, like you said, Jeremy, like once once you kind of have a drive and you want to do something, everything else kind of aligns. All the yeah, other stuff, sure. all the other stuff aligns. Um, yeah, so it didn't really bother me too much. And then you know, I did my five years but, of vet school. Um, but, but did you feel? Did you feel at that point like where you are? Sort of like breaking the tradition that uh, that uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that was. I definitely felt that because you know one thing I noticed that once I started to go to that school, um, 
Um, and I used to, you know, whatever work I would do with animals or um, once I started with placements, I'd go to like South Africa or Thailand and I start putting these pictures up on my social media. One thing I noticed um, was what I felt was quite stinking was whenever I'd come home and I'd talk to my friends or just meet people from my old school or stuff like that, these same people that I remember like maybe back when I was like 16 were like, oh, you like animals? Oh, yeah. They'd be like, oh, Mesh, I love what you do. Oh, man, it's so cool. I love it. It's so cool. Because now that they're seeing someone that they know, someone that they, it's just like them. Oh, just, yeah. That's doing it all. It's um, funny how it swings around, isn't it? Yeah, it just completely swings. Yeah. I, I'm definitely not like so many of like, I, so many of my old friends or old school friends now will hit me up being like, oh, man, I, yeah. love, I just love what doing, seeing what you do. When I remember like yeah. 10 years ago, whatever, it was just like, People would look at me like I was a weird, like, like what? What are you talking about? Why do you want to be a vet for? Mm. Like, and I think, and I think it's a, it's a big milestone to add uh, breaking that tradition of that, you know. You know, depending on where you grow up, yeah. being uh, Indian, you know, it's it's complete. Do you have you seen, you know, in the late now because you've been five years in the vet school, like more more people coming up from your community um, wanting to be like vets. I don't think it's changed drastically. Um, mm -hmm. It's slowly I think, um, improving. It is. It is improving, definitely. Because um, even yeah. when I went to went to the I went to the vet school not that long ago to visit um, a friend of mine, uh, and I did notice just walking around. I was like, oh, there's a there's a bit more um, diversity uh, when I walk around. But it's. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I said, that fig the. It's a very slow change, but I think it is improving. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, but yeah, it's you know it's a slow process. Um, I mean, even with like even with my community in terms of like the Indian community, like um, I would still get like even up until like my third year of university, my mom would call me up and she'd go, Ah, Mahesh, you know it's not too late. And I'd be like, What do you mean it's not too late? She goes, You can still become like a real doctor if you want. And I was like, It's too late, man. It's too late. It's too late. But then when I uh, um, when I graduated, I to a doctor uh -huh. and I showed my mom. She was like, oh, he's a doctor. So she's like, okay. she, she was, uh, she's happy now. She, you know, my, my whole family are very supportive now. Those two letters, man, they mean everything. Oh, yeah, in, well, yeah, definitely. In, in, my, in my community, it means a lot, man. It means a lot. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, even when we at my graduation ceremony, it was quite funny because um, now usually at these graduation ceremonies, it's kind of like when you get called up to collect your certificate and then everyone just like you know get like a silent clap but um my family uh, <laughs> i basically invited a load of my family to come um so it's, obviously it's a huge moment um and most people kind of invite like two or three two or three members of their family to come but i think i had like nine or ten of my family came along and when i went up you just hear like all of my family just get up in this hall where it's just full of like these professors and all these like um quite high up uh, educated people and I just like whoa <laughs> it was so funny it was so funny oh, oh man yeah you've, you've broken that tradition they need to celebrate man like you're, yeah, yeah 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 like my family is super supportive now and they love seeing yeah. what I do so you just yeah, got, you've, you've got to do it your own path definitely when did conservation come into play um so conservation like the re like like I said, like when I was growing up, um, these TV shows and stuff like that were always kind of a, like a huge part of um, 
like me getting into getting into it in the first place and you know a lot of these tv shows would always talk on wildlife and conservation so that was always kind of like a motivating factor and um from like a even from like a religious point of view like in hinduism there's a there's a god called ganesh I'm not sure if you're familiar with him but he's the elephant he's the elephant god um and my family in particular would work you know would worship him and tell his stories all the time so that was something that i would i would always hear so i kind of felt that sort of connection to elephants there um his story is pretty savage though yeah you know there's many different stories but um basically Ganesh is the son of Lord Shiva, whose other name is Mahesh, by the way. That's who I was named after. Um, and Lord Shiva is one of the three, like, essentially the three main gods of Hinduism. You've got Sh- um, Brahma, Vishnu. Vishnu is also known as Krishna or Ram. You might have heard of, heard of them before. Um, and then Shiva is the last one. Um, so his son... So he was, um, his, the story is, is his wife, who is, um, uh, is um, her name is Parvati, which is, she's essentially, in Hinduism, another kind of very uh, big part of Hinduism is Mataji, so the goddess, the goddess, the goddesses, you have like nine goddesses of Hinduism, um, mm-hmm. and she's one of them. Um, and they had a son together called Ganesh. Um, and basically one day, um, the story is, it wasn't like the tradition, it wasn't like the traditional like way of having a child. It was, um, one day I think Lord Shiva was at, this is, this, there's many different stories. So this is just one I'm going to say. Um, one, the, the one story was Lord Shiva was out and, um, his, um, Parvati, she went, she went to go have a shower. She went to go bathe, but she didn't have anybody to guard to make sure they don't come in. So she created Ganesh, um, her son, to basically guard um, guard the guard her so nobody could come in. And she told him nobody's allowed to come in until I'm finished. So Lord Shiva comes home, and he sees Ganesh there, and he goes, Ganesh says you can't come in. And he goes, and he's like, what do you mean I can't come in? Like <laughs> my house, how can I not come in? It's in my I'm I am like. I'm God, like, how can you tell me not that I can't come in? And he's like, no, I've been told you can't come in. And so he, um, Lord Shiva is known as one of the most powerful gods in Hinduism. He's also known as the destroyer. So there's kind of, in Hinduism, there's, we believe in like a cycle. So Lord Brahma is the creator, Lord Vishnu is the preserver, and then Lord Shiva is the destroyer. So it's kind of like the cycle of, cycle of life. So he got angry and he, um, he chopped off Ganesh's head. <laughs> Um, that's the best bit <laughs> um, and then Parvati comes out and sees what's happened and she obviously gets really really upset and um, <laughs> like being one of the f- nine goddesses they're like they're also they're also super super powerful um, uh, so she gets really angry and she transforms into her like into her um, her full state of goddess basically and at this point, Lord Shiva is like, you know, he's like, oh man, I, I messed up here. Um, so he orders his, um, he orders his people to find, to find a head to put on um, Ganesh. And then basically, and um, one of his soldiers basically found an elephant 
and they basically use an elephant's head to put on and um, put on Ganesh. Same thing. Basically, there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of symbolism <laughs> with the elephant. So like, um, he's got the there's a lot of symbolism that comes from Ganesh. So you know, he's got the big ears because what that means is that he's always there to listen to you. Um, Isn't he's got he a, the god of wisdom as well? Yeah, he's a god of wisdom. So whenever yeah. you would, um, whenever people want to like, let's say before an exam or anything <laughs> like that, or they would pray to Ganesh. That's what, so like literally before every exam I've ever taken in my life, um, I would always have this small Ganesh um, like statue that I'd put on my exam desk and I'd say a prayer to him before I would do my exam. That was always kind of the thing that I did. So are you um, still practicing the practicing... Are you still religious at the moment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say I still am. Um, kind of to my own, to my own um, version of it. My family, like my, like my, my mom and my grandparents, they're really, really religious. Um, so I, I definitely still practice it to um, to some extent. Um, hmm. So that's kind of that. That was one one roundabout way of how I was kind of because the elephants in particular I've worked with a lot. So that was kind of one connection was. Lord Ganesh. Um, so, and that's and that's like a, you know that's a big reason why like my family love hearing about my stories with elephants because they they take a lot of like um, spiritual and religious significance from it. Um, and then you know whilst I was at vet school, I was quite fortunate that whenever I got the chance to do any placements, I'd do them at wildlife places. So I went to South Africa to work with a wildlife vet. I went to Thailand to work at the elephant rehab place. I went to zoos and whatnot. And that was always just the field that I felt most comfortable in and I loved the most. Um, that's kind of where the conservation aspect mm. came in. And then after I graduated, um, after I graduated, I, you know, I traveled around Asia for, for quite a while. Um, you know, I wasn't quite 10 years old when Jamil did it, but I waited until I was like 23. <laughs> um, and that was the time that I worked. That's how old I am now. <laughs> that, was, um, that was the time where I worked at the Elephant Nature Park. Um, and they, you know, they rescue elephants from riding camps and you know, um, unethical places like that. And that's where I got like um, a big part of my education in uh, elephant rehabilitation, but also just kind of what it takes to be part of like a, a conservation agency. And that was like a big um, motivating factor for me to just keep going. Um, and whilst I was there, I was able to, I became a mahout for a while, uh, rescued my own elephant. Um, so it was similar to kind of what you were doing, Jemmy, with um, Sudan, but just for a shorter period of time. Um, and then I've just worked, worked around the UK, worked in South Africa for a bit. And now I'm at the couch. At the couch. Bring it full circle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and uh, and um, do you do you do you feel now like you're leaving the the Jamil you wanted to be? Do you do you, can you say like you know, the, you know, vet? Uh, you wanted to be a vet, and this is what you wanted. Are you? Are, um, you, are you the the six year old Maesh leaving your dream? I like to think so. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, def I'm definitely in the field that I wanted to be in when I was a kid. Because, um, mm -hmm. you know, I just had this, yeah, ever since I was a kid, I just had a fascination with the, with the natural world, especially like wildlife and stuff like that. Because, like I said, I didn't, it just felt like a complete, it just felt like a completely different world to me. You know, you're growing up in the mm -hmm. city, you don't have any 
I don't have a bush that I can just walk to. So it just yeah. felt like a, it felt like this magical world that I could just, you know, I'd see it on the TV or in movies. So the fact that now I can say, oh, you know, I've actually worked in, in those places and, and I've been quite, and I've been quite good when I worked in those places. And I'm, you know, mm-hmm. um, like if I can say that to my six year old self, I think, I think it'd be a happy, a happy life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned Steve Irwin quite early on. And yeah. I only raised this because it, I also, you know, saw Steve Irwin. I was like, oh, that's what I want to do as a kid. Yeah. And, but like, at least what I've noticed is later on in the years, there's been quite a bit of controversy about him and the way yeah. he did stuff. So, like, I still really respect the guy and stuff, but I don't know how you feel about um, it now versus when you were like six years old, I especially think after doing a veterinary degree. Um, I mean, it's a good question. Uh, I think that it ties in a lot with. Um, I mean, when you're a kid, obviously you don't see that. So, yeah. when you're a kid, you just see this guy who loves animals. Do he does what he can. He's 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 hands on with them, and you know, it just looks like a guy who's living his living his dream. Um, obviously, now there's I I know what you mean with the controversies because like the, they used to say that he was just a bit too hands on. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's tricky. He wasn't perfect, but like as you, as all of you guys know, that there, there is no perfect in the conservation world. Yeah, you can. There's, there's, there's no perfect in any world. Yeah, there's there's nobody yeah. in there's nobody who's doing it like one hundred. I don't think you can say there's anyone who's doing it one hundred percent the right way, because yeah. anybody would find a fault with it. Um, yeah. But what you can't question um, is like the impact he had. Yeah, like, exactly. I'm pretty sh- pretty sure there's a massive generation of people that have got into it because of him. Um, mm-hmm. so whilst there may be now, like now that I'm educated and it may be there's some methods that I probably don't agree with, I don't think I can like, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even be here to disagree with it if it wasn't for him. No, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I can't really like knock him. It's, it's a, it's a tough one, but I can't knock him too much because he's one of the reasons I'm in this position now. So mm. and things yeah, wow. yeah, things yeah. like he was doing this, what, like 15 years ago or yeah. how, long, how long it was like. It was a long time ago. It's kind of like, you know, like when you're working with, uh, in Nepal with those elephants, that they were being ridden, but that still was like a massive, that still had a massive impact on your life, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You might just, there might be some parts we might disagree with now, but it shaped you to what? Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, I think he did a great job, to be honest. Um, and yeah, he brought it, he made it like, he made so, it mainstream, didn't it? He made it mainstream. Yeah. And you can't put yeah. a moral and ethical lens on the past because then you know obviously slavery is not acceptable now but way way back when you know things change and evolve and you know all these views that people have now about conservation i i doubt they were being raised back when he was doing that or they to a very a lot lower level yeah yeah and like it what in 20 years time when we look back at some of the things that we're doing now we'll probably look back yeah at some exactly, of the things yeah. that we're doing now, like that was pretty unethical. Or, like what were you doing? But you just do what you can do with the yeah, information exactly. you have in that moment, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah of course. Alrighty, so wow. great. So it's Last Blin now. Last <laughs> I don't think my this one's gonna what... be too, too long, but uh um, so my name is Blaine and in a nutshell, I guess I'm an architect turned conservationist. Um, 
So my conservation journey, the actual conservation part is very, very new, like less than a couple of years, I'd say. But um, I'll probably step through my whole journey because that contributes somewhat to it. So I was born in New Zealand. Um, I am Indigenous New Zealander, so I'm, I'm Māori. That's how you pronounce Maori. it. Māori. Yeah. Māori. bread. Remember you like told me last week. Yeah. My flatmate's Māori as well. And I said it to him like, oh, yeah, someone yeah, told yeah. me you said Māori, kind of little Māori. Little and he's like, yeah. Hack. I bet you've had to say that quite a few times. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I actually had in high school, I remember one of my um, friend's mums picked us up from school and I was like introducing myself and I was like, yeah, I'm Moldy. And she's like, don't you marry? I'm like, no, no, like a lot of people say marry, but it's actually pronounced Moldy. And she's like, no, it's, it's pronounced marry. <laughs> I was like, you telling me? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anyways. So born in New Zealand in a uh, town called Whangarei. So that's like north. That's about two hours north of Auckland. So most okay. people know where Auckland is. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so my dad's Māori and my mum's, um, she's from New Zealand, but she's European. And on her side, it's Irish, English heritage. And on my dad's side, obviously, it's, it's Māori. And I've actually got a little bit of Norwegian in me from my dad's side as well. Ooh. And that's where my last name comes from, Edwards, because his name was Edvard Johansson. And he was huh. a Norwegian sailor. And tricky Your dad situation. was a Norwegian sailor? No, no, no. no. This is the, the Norwegian part. Oh. So this is about five gener- well, four generations ago. Oh, okay. Um, but he, our last name came from that. Because uh, in Māori culture... Traditionally, we didn't really have the last name type thing. That wasn't really a thing. That was oh. people started doing that when Europeans came and they wanted to keep track of everything. Um, oh, so I don't know. A lot of members of my family used, took Edvard and used the English translation of Edwards as our last name. And then some of us mm-hmm. took a, a different name, which is Nehua. So like half, Nehua. technically I'm a Nehua, but oh. my birth certificate says Edwards. Anyways, born there. Um, uh, in a you know relatively decent neighbourhood, I guess. I mean, uh, I'd say not a lot of money in my family, but compared to most people in the world, I've got a shitload. Yeah. But relative to kind of where I was, we didn't have enough, but a lot, but we had enough to to get by. Um, I always grew up wanting to be an all black. That was my dream. And I was adamant. <laughs> like I was so adamant that I had nothing else in my mind. So All Blacks, yeah, yeah, yeah. obviously, the, the yeah, national yeah. rugby team of New Zealand. And that was my dream. Like going back to what you're saying, Jimmy, with Mahesh, with what was his, was this his dream? For me, mm-hmm. what I'm doing now wasn't my dream as a six-year-old. It was mm-hmm. always, it was always being rugby player. And saying that, I've always been had this connection with nature i've always i've always um you know felt this connection with not just animals but like trees like i'd look at a tree and i'd consider that tree like an extended part of my family like i've always like in a literal kind of way and that was something that i always had inside of me from from a little youngster and just the interesting thing in in multi mythology um we literally believe that 
the earth, the sky, the trees, the animals are part of our family. Like um, we literally believe they are part of our family, like rivers. Um, so uh, like this is not just for me, like a lot of Maldives have this, this very real deep connection with nature. And even so much as, okay, so every Maldi has a tribe and my tribe's called Napui. And every Napui. And every tribe has a subtribe. And it's and my subtribe is called Natiho. But every Maldi also has a, a mountain. So and every every Maldi has like a mountain and, and a river. And so my mountain is Hudawiki. So like back in the day when a Maldi would like meet a new Maldi, like they'd they'd go through this introduction process and they would pretty much say this is my mountain, this is my river, this is like my dad, my mom. They'd go through all these kind of identifying factors and that was their way of saying, this is who I am. So I thought that was quite interesting yeah. that they would cool. include mountains, that include a river as part yeah. of their identity. And I, I guess by doing with those big landmarks, they also kind of gave the other person a geographical location as well in mm. their mind because they must have known where the rivers are exactly. and stuff and the mountains. Yeah, yeah especially the mountains. So you could see um, exactly that. Obviously raised above other landmarks. So when you speak to someone else, they could, they, you could easily identify, you know, this tribe. It's this mountain which you can see. Yeah. So that was pretty interesting. And while we're talking about mountains, I'll quickly tell this story. Um, so my mountain, like I said, is Mount is Hudawiki. and uh, that was in our family. Like um, people from our tribe, as when they're younger, they'd grow up on that mountain. Like it was a very um, important part of their life. But due to reasons, um, it got you know European farmers uh, came and acquired that land. And, and obviously a lot of people that would play on that mountain and grow up on that mountain were no longer allowed to access it. And my dad, um, my dad passed away when I was seven, but one of his, um, things was he wanted, he would like to have that mountain in our family again. And my older brother actually five, probably about six years ago, um, my older brother's a lot older than me. He's so I'm the youngster in the family. I'm going to have a bit of a, like what's all bits and bobs of stories, but I'm the youngest in the family. Uh, I've got three older brothers and two older sisters. Oh, big fan. And so yeah, big big family, and they're all a lot older than me. But my oldest brother, he he was kind of the more like successful one in terms of career wise like he was a lawyer um uh moved to hong kong ended up working uh, in investment banking worked for credit suisse and was quite high up in that um so he ended up coming back to new zealand and bought the land that the mountain hey, is on that's so cool. and wow. that's you know, that is um, he bought a mountain he bought a mountain that is pretty wow. cool <laughs> and that's not actually a story you hear very often at all, no. um, like actually coming back and <laughs> buying back the mountain that was arguably stolen from you. Yeah. I was going to say, when you said the Europeans came and purchased the land, did they purchase it or 
acquire they, it. They did put, put uh, this, I don't even know the, <laughs> all the finicky details, but there, <laughs> he, did, he did purchase it, but it wasn't good. Like it wasn't a mutually beneficial arrangement. It wasn't a, a fair no, trade. Like America, I guess. Yeah. So, um, so he bought that land back, which was awesome. And, and one of the first things he did was allow everyone in the tribe access to it. Oh, so you'd have, so um, have, you know, 80 year olds walk up onto this mountain um, for the first time since they were wow. kids. And you'd have these fully grown men and women crying on the mountain. Um, so that was pretty cool. And I remember the very first time I went up the mountain myself, you feel like I don't like getting too kind of like spiritual and stuff like that because I am very spiritual, but it can be blown out of proportion a lot of times. I walked up that mountain for the first time and you could feel something. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. like you literally could feel something. And I was there, went up there with my brother and we just kind of sat there at the top and just had kind of that moment of no words were spoken, but yeah. you could just, yeah, very powerful. Very powerful, yeah. Um, so, if you were to describe yeah. the feeling in words, could you put it into words? It, it was like this, this connection, like yeah. this mountain was sharing something with me. And the mountain with the trees and everything else that were on it was yeah. um, speaking to me in some weird way or well, like yeah. connecting. It, it, felt, it felt tangible in, in a lot of ways. It was very powerful. Not an experience that I've had before. And every single time I go back up there, when I visit New Zealand, when I can feel it, it's very strange, very bizarre. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've always had this, this inclination to be yeah. around nature, but I wanted to be a rugby player. That was my dream. And like I mentioned, my, my dad un unfortunately passed away when I was seven. Um, and then, so my mom met my stepdad and we moved to Australia when I had my eighth birthday in Sydney. And we eventually trained over to Perth, which is on the West coast of Australia. And, um, Pretty much lived there the majority of my life. I did all my schooling there. Um, didn't like Australia at the time because Australia and New Zealand are very competitive. So <laughs> it took it took a, a few years to to grow to appreciate the country. But I'm very much a fan now. Um, my my stepdad passed away when I was 13. Um, so you know, as a youngster, there was a there was a couple yeah. of small kind of moments like that where um, I started asking myself pretty deep questions. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. by nature, I think I'm very deep. I've always been asking deep questions ever since I was a little kid. Uh, but when you couple that with a dad dying, a stepdad dying, you start asking very, very big questions. Yeah. As a seven-year-old, I was asking like, why do people that you love die? Why do good people die? Yeah and all these kind of things. 
Damn, um, I wish uh, I wish seven year old you and six year old Jemmy met. That would have been a deep conversation <laughs> between two kids. <laughs> De- definitely, yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah. So much rhetorical and uh, questions without answers, and I think when you go deeper into them, they just lead you to a different person. Like, it's completely relatable, um, uh, Blaine. Mm. Mm. So that was quite interesting, and um, in high school. Uh, yeah, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was still chasing that all-black dream all the way up um, pretty much midway through high school. And then I had a bad series of injuries um, <laughs> that kind of cut any chance of that maybe happening, or well, at least I thought at the time. Um, um, yeah, so... I didn't really know what I wanted to do after high school. My high school wasn't very good. It was a pretty dodgy high school. Um, when I'm See the trend my, here. Yeah, like my, <laughs> my, my, girlfriend, my girlfriend that I met at university, uh, she, she goes to like one of the consistently in the top kind of two or three in the state. And one year I remember I was like, oh, I wonder just out of curiosity what my school came that year. And my school, my school came last in the state. Out of, there was about three hundred schools, high schools, and my school came last. Um, so, yeah, I didn't really know what I wanted to do after school. And another thing that didn't help me was my very first year of high school. Um, I did well; like I was always pretty smart at, at primary school. But if you were smart at primary school, in primary school, you it didn't matter. Like you're, yeah. I was good at sport. I was pretty decent at um, high school and that wasn't a problem. But in high school, I remember my first assembly, I won a couple of awards. And after that moment, everyone started calling me squid, which is like nerd or something. <laughs> uh, so, I heard that before. <laughs> so I, I knew no one in high school because all my friends from primary school went to a different <clears> high school. So I knew zero people at high school. So that stuff there, so I'm not going to try. So literally from year eight, which is the first year to the last year, I I just didn't try. And to the point where I started the last year of high school and I didn't know how to get into uni because none of the teachers told me what I needed to study. They didn't didn't tell me that you needed to study at least this tier or this level of subject in order to qualify. And so I started year 12, the last year, and I realized a quarter way through that I needed an, an additional subject. So I changed subject. So when I eventually um, had the, the right amount of subjects to study in high school, yeah, yeah. The, the teachers started asking me perhaps, you know, what did you want to maybe study at university? And I said, maybe architecture. Okay. And they said, let's aim for something a bit lower. (laughs) (laughs) And the thing was architecture for there's two different unis. So the the lower uni, the the grade I needed was like, I needed to rank in the top 20% in the state for um, TU people. So this is people that are trying to get into uni. I was like, that's, that's a decent, I can do that. They're like, no, just aim something a bit more attainable. Okay. I did it anyway. And, um, sounds like, sounds like I, we had a very similar conversation. Did really well in high school. And then um, 
uh, I remember came, came, came down to like the last exams, I guess, to the final exams for, for high school to get in. And um, I remember I dislocated my shoulder, which um, meant that I couldn't go to one of my teams. I was in like the Australian touch team or something at the time. And I couldn't go to the, I couldn't go to the training camp. Because you played, you played at quite a high level. Well, touch is, I mean, touch is, is uh, yeah. completely different piece to, <laughs> to rugby union, but I was like yeah. pretty good at rugby union as well. Yeah. Um, but I was, yeah, so I was, I was in the Australian team at the time and I couldn't participate in the physical part of the exam. <laughs> and, um, but the thing is they gave you estimated mark and I was like, okay, cool. I was like averaging like in the 90% for sport at, in high school. I was in the Australian touch team. I was the only one out in my state that made the team. And I was like, yeah, my estimated mark would be real good. And got my estimated mark back and I was like 33%. I somehow, I somehow failed. And, and because of the bell curve, like if you get real low thing, that, that can bring your whole thing down real yeah. quick. I was like, this is just tap. Like I, I don't understand the system. What are you doing? What formula do you use? <laughs> and like, I was worried that I didn't, couldn't get into uni, but I ended up getting in. So that's sweet as. Um, and but kind of interesting just, story to you, Mahesh. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was just going to say, like, because you mentioned you were called a squid. Um, yeah. And then <laughs> was. <laughs> what, that's a funny was word. The, a squid. The, the lack of effort. Of consequence of being called a squid and you kind of wanted to back away from the nerdy sort of studious one and it was just to kind of fit in more or did you do you think you were going through other stuff as well well probably a combination like um i went to i wanted yeah not to be called out i don't want more attract attraction to yeah. me that i do and I didn't know anyone, so I was just like, this is probably the easiest. I wanted the path of least resistance. Yeah. And so that's that's kind of why I I did it. Um and I was introverted and I was a bit like awkward, so I didn't actually make yeah. too many friends. Um I ended up being in the cool group at the end, and the only reason was because I was really I was good at sport. So I was beating all these cool kids uh, at sport. So they kind of had to befriend me. Uh, Who's the squid? No, otherwise, no. They're, they're, <laughs> otherwise, I'd look at it, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. So, I got into uni, and, and um, interesting thing. So, my very first day, I remember, um, because my neighbourhood was pretty dodgy. Like it's no, like it's notorious in Perth for being like pretty, pretty dodgy. And I remember my first day of uni. Everyone was introducing themselves and I introduced myself and I was like, yeah, I'm Blaine. I went to this high school. And at this time, I didn't actually realize my neighborhood was dodgy. I didn't realize my school was about, like, yeah, yeah. you know, you, you, yeah, grew, you grew up there. So you don't, you don't understand unless you have something else to compare it to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I remember this, this, this chick, she was like, how did you get into this? So I ended up going to the best uni in the state. And she's like, how did you get into um, UWA when you went to a public school? in Rockingham. <laughs> University of West Auckland? Like University that? of Western Australia. So this is Western in Australia. Australia. Okay. Oh, okay. Cool. And I was like, oh, just the same way as you. 
But that was my first first taste yeah, of this. Yeah, yeah. Weird when you realize, yeah, when you step outside of the uh, the bubble, yeah, you're like, oh. I was like, this is people are like this, like yeah, it's bizarre, it's crazy. Um, but then I was also like Jamil, I I didn't go to uni. Uh, <laughs> I, just, I, just, I, just, I just I just didn't go to uni. Like the first year, I I tried, um, and then just every year thereafter, I just. Just wasn't interested. I didn't like the people that I went to uni with. They're all pretentious and up themselves. So I, I didn't relate to anyone. There was like a couple of people that were like misfits and we all bonded. Um, we, yeah, so ended up befriending <laughs> a few of them, but like the majority, we just, just weren't my vibe. So it, people ended up call, calling me the elusive one just because I didn't come to uni like some some the elusive squid the elusive squid I'm the colossal squid yeah <laughs> uh, but yeah so I, I, I finished I ended up finishing uni like actually halfway through I was going to drop out and do wildlife filmmaking because there's I always had this voice in my head I'm like this is you want to work with animals nature somehow I just didn't know how to do it and I was, I was so close to dropping out and then my family and my friends said, you need to finish this, you're halfway through. So I decided to finish it. And then um, that was good. Got that expensive piece of paper, sweet as. Did some traveling with my girlfriend and was exposed to uh, some of the unethical elephant tourism in Southeast Asia. And I was completely oblivious at the time. And I think that exposure to that sparked this flame inside of me yeah. that um, I want to try and do something about this somehow. And so that's where Earth Offline kind of started was it was an Instagram account that was supposed to raise awareness for more ethical tourism. Like I, yeah. I, the, the problem I was trying to solve at that particular moment was the tourism part. What year was this? This was... This was like 2017. So this was like when I, oh, yeah, the end of 2017. Oh, that was, that was the year that I was traveling in Asia as well. <laughs> yes, like I remember this epiphany. I was like, oh, Earth Offline, this has got to be like online hub, offline experiences. And then I bought the domain and then I ended up like, okay, so if I have Earth Offline, I could have like Africa Offline, Australia Offline, I, I could have North America Offline. Yeah, stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then like, okay. I could do cities. Like, so <laughs> one, I remember one night in Sri Lanka, I, I Googled the most popular like tourism places in, this, in the world. And I, I got an Instagram account for like 30 different places <laughs> in, in the world. So I had China offline. I had like all these, I had all the continents and then major countries and then some major uh. cities. Um, I wouldn't recommend doing that because a lot of these ones I just don't have access to anymore. But I was just so motivated. I was like, okay, this is an idea. And ended up coming back to Australia and working as an architect and was fortunate enough to get a pretty good job. And then, yeah, I guess my girlfriend moved to Brisbane, the other side of the country last year. And so I followed her and because I had to leave my job and move location, I decided to actually reevaluate my life and try and figure out what I actually want to do. So I started thinking about like what my purpose is and 
there was like a long process of reflecting on what that actually means. And I was you know, watching a lot of videos and, and and ended up coming on that idea of purpose is like the intersection of what you're good at, what you're passionate about, um, what can make you money and what adds value to the world. So it's like this framework that I could uh, visualize and I'll try and plug in different things that would make sense to me and, and try and, try and find something where all of those things would overlap. And so I started looking at conservation and I was like, okay, I want to see if I can find some purpose in conservation given that framework. And I I started with trying to solve a problem first. So I try to identify a problem in conservation and there seemed to be like a communication problem. Like there's a disconnect between the science and the public. And I've said this before, like, like I started going, breaking down like how people communicate and they communicate on social media. How do they communicate on social media through content? How do they communicate? What, what does content mean? Content is videos, memes, like tweets, podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, okay, I can kind of create content given this architecture school. There was like that strength component there potentially through creating content and then i'm obviously passionate about conservation it obviously adds value to the world because it's conservation and then the money aspect um i knew that theoretically i can make money through it and through marketing somehow like i've started a a separate business that um, is making me tiny bits of money on the side and so once i realized that i could find purpose in this space i went all in and when I went all in, I created the podcast and that was a, a year ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I started the podcast and pretty much felt like I had a lot of catching up to do. And um, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. My conservation journey, like I said, is very new and young. It's it's less than two but, years old. Really. But it, it, it almost it started quite young though, based on... Yeah, yeah. I mean, officially well, started, started young. Yeah, officially, yeah. like, like, and like, consciously, I guess, yeah. has only been less than two years. Mm. Guess, like, yeah, it has been always part of it, but consciously, yeah. a year and a half ago. What What was the yeah. idea behind your initial uh, podcast? Because that's the conservation tribe sort mm. of thing. So, well, what was the idea behind it? Like, the purpose? What? Why did you go with that route? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I knew, so my end goal was kind of conservation at scale, and um, one part of one problem that needs to be solved in order to achieve that is for me, I need to build a community. Um, I need to build a community, and then I need to figure out how to communicate, and then I need to figure out how to monetize down the track, and so. This was part of that strategy to create that community. So that podcast in tandem with the Instagram page was they kind of work off each other and feed each other in a way. And so that was that part. This was me trying to start the process of creating a community because I knew that was integral to conservation at scale for me. And then another part was because I started late, I needed to, I needed a hack in order to meet new people. I needed a, a hack to, to uh, yeah, interview, yeah. I guess, influential people in the space. 
and a podcast was a good way to do that because yeah. if you need to meet people do a podcast where you meet people as part of the process yeah so that was the more um that was another aspect to it as well okay mm. cool wow cool a building story, community i guess was, this is what would have happened if mahesh chose architecture I do think I I can Sorry, I think I just disappeared there for a second so if anything is important was said I don't know if it recorded it on my side Yeah, no, I was just saying that I I could still go full circle with uh, architecture and design like wildlife sanctuaries and stuff like that Yeah, exactly Yeah Yeah. Yeah. But I also think you're yeah, architectural great. work is not like as um as 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 demanding it's not like an on-site job you still can do uh, architectural stuff even as you continue doing other aspects of your life because i think it doesn't demand you to you can just maybe i have a wrong understanding of it but i think you can just you know you can still continue working on it as you continue on other aspects of life though mm. and that is an option but like if the reason why I decided to change the career is because I genuinely want to go all in on yeah. trying to achieve conservation at scale. Like mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't transition if um, I was just going to do it 50, yeah, 50. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so um, the, obviously I need to make money and that's the, the new business that I've got on the side, which is your social harvest. And that in itself is part of my strategy to achieve conservation at scale. Like, like I said before, I've got a community aspect and then I need a communication aspect. So this business is me figuring out how to communicate at like a commercial level at a mainstream level. And so this is me trying to figure out that step as well. So everything that I'm doing now is taking one step closer towards that final goal. And if I worked for an architecture agency like company at the moment, that would detract from that goal. And um, it is definitely tempting because it's, it's, it's pretty bloody tough and it's hard to convince yourself of doing that, especially yeah, yeah, when you've yeah. invested years and money. Um, yeah, you're, you're, yeah it's, and you're going into a completely new industry where you've known, you, you know, no one. It is, it is tough, but, I'm not like I'm one that if I do something, yeah, I'm going to do it. And I, yeah. in the past, everything that I've done, I've, I've done well. I've proven people wrong my whole entire yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. And so when I decided to do this, I'm like everything that I do, if it's not helping me achieve that goal, then I'm not doing it. Mm. I love that. Yeah. Wow. So all um, um, what is um, my social harvest? The, your social your, harvest. Your social. So it's 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 a your. it's a eco social media agency. So I work with um, so it's, it's similar to, I guess what I'm doing with Earth Offline, but with Earth Offline it's exclusively with conservation, and you're working with not not for profit. So there's not a lot of money involved yeah, there yeah, to yeah. like work with these charities, right? It's you're you're doing this work not for the money you're just trying to help them but um you also need to have money so you can survive so i'm pretty much taking the skills that i've learned through growing earth offline and i'm using it to work with for-profit 
organizations, businesses that have an eco twist, like um, whether it be like an environmentally friendly hotel, yeah. or uh, I work cool. with a, like a, a charity where I make content for them. Um, like that also fits into my framework. Like for me, a conservationist is anyone that is um, who acts or advocates for the protection of our planet. And that can include Any literally so many yeah. different people like a company that is doing work that is sustainable and is giving back to the planet. They are a conservationist to me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the difference is they are a for-profit conservationists. And so I can work with them from a business point of view, which is, um, yeah, I guess what I'm trying to do at the moment, working with both the not-for-profits and the for-profits because both are important. Yeah. They're both me, just important. Yeah. No, I, I mean, yeah, so I your social harvest is a social media agency. Yeah. Oh, cool. did, did you come up with the term, or is digital concert, uh, conservationist a thing you've come up with and coined it? Because I, I always found that really like cool. Because it's like digital yeah. conservationist. Well, it's not like that I would have traditionally imagined. Yeah, as yeah. Conservation, well, as you're saying, everything's involved. It's um something that I coined, like I kind of just invented myself, and I actually did a talk. Uh, two nights ago where I was telling my story to like, it's like actually like over 90 people it was all on zoom. And as part of what I was going to say, I was going to say like, what is a digital conservationist? I don't actually know what it means. It's something that I invented, but one of the speakers, yeah. uh, I checked out his website. He, he um, works in blockchain and on his website, he has digital conservationists. And that's the only time I've seen digital conservationists anywhere else. Um, right. Yeah, at, when I put it on my Instagram bio, I just thought of it myself. No, no, it's really cool. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so, well, just what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, Jeremy, I've just noticed your jumper. Oh. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, what? what do you think the direction is going to be from now onwards in regards to conservation? Because out of all four of us, I think you're the one who's, you know, really going for it social media wise uh, or the most efficiently. Um, well, and Gemma as well, clearly. Yeah, Gemma. Um, but what am I, I don't steps? know, Mahesh, I'm not afraid of the bus, but <laughs> I'm not that big and <laughs> I don't know about you, but <laughs> it's, a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It's a marathon, and conservation is a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So my, my main steps at the moment are getting the, the Your Social Harvest business, uh, taking that to the next level and getting more, more money because money in itself is an amplifier. So um, the more money that I have, the more I can amplify the good that I'm trying to do. Um, so that is the, that next step because I have. A, a plan in my head and I have a process of um, what I want Earth Offline to eventually be. And I've got people that I would hire um, to help me create content, but I just need yeah. the money to, to yeah, pay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, your social harvest is the, the step getting the money. And then I have a plan in place to, to really roll out a lot of um, conservation content uh, like at, at scale. Um, because everything that I'm doing at the moment is just by myself and, and it's obviously there's limits to what you yeah, can, yeah. What yeah, you can yeah. do. But I've tried to make it as efficient as possible intentionally. Like I, 
I've wanted to go through that process of trying to make it as efficient as possible from a single person because I think that's important because then I can share that with other single like individuals as well. No. We could man. Oh, there we go. Oh. A bit different, a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. still, still, it's um, inspiration. That's a cool story. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to be an amplifier. That's what my my mission is. I want to be a conservation amplifier, and amplify pretty much the work that other people are doing. Um, the people on the ground doing the hard yakka, if you will. I want to be the the amplifier for them, and I want to be the amplifier through helping them communicate their message better but also the last step of the process last step of my master plan is um, trying to figure out how to monetize conservation or how to monetize the work that conservationists do and so if i can figure that out that will also be an amplifier so amplify yeah. conservation in terms of communication and entrepreneurship which is huge. conservation's naturally going to trend towards for profit in the future mm -hmm. just just because if it doesn't it's not a very sustainable <laughs> concept because you have people well, yeah. everything and then uh -huh. they, they don't really have anything for their own life well that's um, why a lot of people are yeah. seeing now with covid though aren't they like a lot of yeah. these conservation yeah. organizations yeah. are losing money yeah, yeah there's a ceiling like a, a for a not for profit isn't a, a scalable um, business model because you're limited to what people give you Whereas a yeah. for-profit, you can you can scale that far quicker and you can scale that further. Yeah. But there's wow. there's unique yeah. challenges that are associated with that as well. But yeah. in terms of the scalability part, a for a not a for-profit is far more scalable than a not-for-profit. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Well, I and I also think you know as 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 time advances in you know. Um, there needs to be more innovation in conservation. I think yeah. um, trying to shift it from leaning so more to the charitable aspects becomes the better version of them, the modern day conservation uh, that, that needs to be embraced. So I, I completely think you, you're up to the game now, um, Blaine, <laughs> and I think it's, um, it's what is the revolutionary conservationist. And I think that's why folks, we are all here. And I think that's why that's what we need to to adapt and uh, you know look forward to the future because that's what the future holds for conservation. If our children and our grandchildren are to see this wildlife in, in, in the future. <laughs>